This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot and they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May, and again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates, and that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick-and-mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the U.S., My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Army veteran, firefighter, and author Josh Chase. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the military, making the transition from military leader to probationary firefighter, his incredibly powerful mental health story, grief, 
the rescue that earned him the Medal of Honor, his books, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does... Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Josh Chase. Enjoy. Well, Josh, I want to start by saying thank you so much. Um, I'm very excited about this conversation. We're gonna we're gonna go to a number of areas, I'm sure, but I'm most excited for the fact that you love truck company operations more than engine operations. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely do. <laughs> I grew up on an engine company, but I do like the truck. And uh, one day I'll probably have to journey back to the engine, but it won't be without my love for the truck. So, you know. Absolutely. I've, I've been on, yeah. on both. And then, you know, obviously the, the Southeast, we do a lot of EMS stuff too. So I rode the rescue for a long time, but my heart yeah. will always be on a tiller truck in California. Yeah. Well, I love it. Well, we definitely have something in common then. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Well, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, I am at home in beautiful Virginia Beach, Virginia. I'm on a uh, one-day break here. I go back on shift tomorrow, and then I got a busy weekend up ahead. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'm in Virginia Beach, and it's it was 70 degrees three days ago, and now it's 50, but that's where I live. Beautiful. Now, just wait, just you've opened the door for a split second. I know yeah. a lot of the Northeast works very different kind of work weeks to a lot of the rest of the sure. country. What is your work yeah. week like? Are you on 2448s or a different pattern? Yeah, so it's a weird schedule. So I'll start you with it on the first week. So after our five day break, we start over and we go back and we work Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, 24 shifts, 24 hour shifts that week. The next week, we'll work a Monday, Friday, 24 hour shifts. That next week, we'll work a Sunday, Wednesday, 24 hour shifts. Uh, at the end of that three week cycle, we get a five, uh, five day break. So it, it breaks up to be about nine and a half days a month with a Kelly thrown in there. So, okay. Yeah. So is that a 48-hour work week when you break it down? Yeah, it ends up being about 52, 52-hour work week, and then you throw in a mandatory overtime there, you know, so it ends up being about, you know, anywhere from 60 to 72, depending on how you're working. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll get into that later. I just was curious, because yeah. a lot of not the, sure. the Northeast actually is on a 42-hour work week, which uh, the rest of the country doesn't really get to experience. Yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. All right. Well, then let's start at the very beginning of your timeline. Sure. Then. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, sure. So I was born in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, lived there for about a month and moved to Providence, Rhode Island. And that's where I probably spent, I, I would say what I consider the early years. I grew up there till I was about nine years old. Grew up in a very urban area, uh, low income, very similar to uh, the city, some of the parts of the city that I serve in right now. And um, I'm the oldest of three. Uh, my dad was a teacher. My mom was like a secretary receptionist. My dad was also like a pastor uh, in, an, in and out of the religious system for like a Methodist church. 
And like I said, I'm the oldest of three. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. And we moved from Providence, Rhode Island when I was about nine down to beautiful Virginia Beach unexpectedly. Uh, 1992, we went on spring break vacation in April. And next thing you know, I was planted in Virginia Beach in June of that same year because my dad decided we were moving. And, um, you know, some family stuff was happening. We moved and I've been in Virginia Beach pretty much pretty much ever since. Honestly, haven't left yet. Don't plan on leaving if my kids stick around. So. So when you hear people that grew up in um, a family dynamic where one or both of the parents was deeply embedded in a religion, it can go one of two ways. They can follow in that path and stay very embedded or they can sometimes push the exact opposite. What was that influence for you early in your life? Yeah, so I kind of did a little bit of both. I I really, I just grew up in church. My dad was a pastor and my mom ran Sunday school. And I didn't really know anything else that was, <clears throat> excuse me, that was it for me. And um, they didn't really explain a lot of things that I would say I learned um, as I got older and went through life. It was more religious, religion, do this, do that. If you don't do this, you know, you're probably going to go to hell. If you do these things, you probably won't go to hell. And that's kind of how, you know, as a kid, it was just a lot of back and forth. I learned a lot of Bible songs, that kind of thing. Turned 18 and realized that I'd really been wrapped up in a religious culture. I could not be perfect. And I decided that, you know, by the time I was 18, that, well, if I wasn't going to be perfect, I wasn't going to stick around church or do religion by any means. And just kind of started doing my own thing. Um, Always believe God exists you know, and and I knew there was a faith base there, but I didn't understand the kind of God that they were selling me. It was conflicted. On one hand, it was God loves you no matter what. And on the other hand, there was all this really religious rules I had to follow. So I really, I ran and uh, I ran for, you know, probably from I was 18 to 30 years old before I really kind of got back to where I am now, I would say, where I understand it more as a relationship with God. Um, than I do religion, where, you know, if I say, just because I say shit doesn't mean I'm going to go to hell, you know, <laughs> but that that is how I was raised and uh, love my parents. I think they've grown in their faith too. And, uh, you know, they would probably look back and at some things that they taught us and say, well, we were just doing our best, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's very interesting. Yeah, I've, I've, I've always had, I would like to say a relationship with God, but I was, I was raised very, very loosely in the Church of England, which I think is Methodist, if I got that right. Um, I know it's lots of very dark, boring songs that you have to sit through for hours on end. So whatever oh, yeah. church oh, yeah. that is. Oh, there. <laughs> Eddie yep. Izzard, actually, the, the stand-up comedian, talked about that. He's like, why, you know, with the white, you know, privileged Christians, the ones that sang the depressing songs and the ones that were brought right. up through slavery have the songs that were uplifting and fun. He's oh, like, <laughs> that's so funny. I've never thought about that, but that is very good perspective. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but I had that even recently. I told the story probably a long time ago on here, but I was cleaning out my garage in my old house. And back then I still had a shaved head and I got you know, a few tattoos on my chest and was just in board shorts and cleaning out the garage. And these two people came up and I forget which faith they were from but probably jehovah's witnesses i think they probably were i was trying not to throw them under the bus but yeah oh yeah sorry (laughs) but anyway they were like you know starting talking to me about god and i'm like well let me ask you something you know what's your stance on homosexuality and they're oh it's a sin and an abomination i was like okay sweet can you get the fuck off my driveway then because i don't believe in a god that creates people only to send them to hell so you know i think there are some bad bad people in the world but not based on their sexuality so that's what i struggle with 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 the the rules like you said is if it's a a universal 
doctrine of love, kindness, compassion, gratitude, I'm all in, whatever country that yeah. comes from. But the moment you get divisive and you start stringing people of different colors from trees, then I start to question your, uh, your faith yeah. a little bit. Yeah, no, I completely hear you. You know, and that's one of the things I think I've realized over the years is that I was raised a certain way. And even in my adult years, I learned certain things. And as I would say that I developed my own relationship with God, I started to realize that a lot of religious things that I learned, even inside churches that I appreciated and liked, were not necessarily true. They were, uh, you know, it was meant for the best, but it was also created by humans. And there were a lot of standards and rules that I thought, how how could a God expect me to even follow that? You know, if if we're talking about example, I love my kids. I'm a father. You know, I love my kids and I would do anything for my kids. And I've always been taught that God is a father. And the father that people were describing to me was just not a father that would do anything for his children. And I believe now that I do know a father that would do anything for me. And I've probably learned more about God and my relationship with God by spending time with God and not relying on people in the church to tell me who I am or who I should be or who I shouldn't be. You know, I think it's a very individual journey. It's a very individual based journey. I think, um, you know, I have different relationships with each one of my kids. You know, I have, you know, two girls and a son and they all require different things and, I can't talk to this one the same way I can talk to this one. And I mean, I believe God works the same way. Um, it's not a blanket, you know, for everything. I think there are common things we'd agree on. Yeah, it's not a good idea to steal. You know, you probably shouldn't cheat on your wife. You know, there's some there's some basic principles I think we could agree that are good. But everybody's working out their journey. And, you know, I, I think I'm in a relationship. Well, I know I'm in a relationship with a God that's going to love me throughout my journey, whatever that looks like. Um, and it doesn't have to be perfect. And I think I just got sick of this pressure to live perfect. And there's this freedom in a relationship with a God who says, I do love you no matter what. And I do want the best for you. And we're going to see what that looks like moving forward. And you can drink whiskey while you do it. It's not a big deal. You know, he's so, like, I drink wine yeah. in church. We're cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's such a journey for me. And I don't, you know, I don't tell people they have to believe what I have to believe. I don't have any explanation of how my life has turned out the way that it has. If it was Buddha, I would tell you Buddha. I mean, it's just not Buddha for me. So, but, you know, to each their own, um, you know, I think I found what works for me and my family and I'm, I'm excited about it. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think that individualized thing is, is everything, you know, when I hear people, yeah. you know, preachers saying, Oh, I spoke to God and he told me to give, you know, you should give me your credit card number. I'm like, did you really speak to God though? I mean, do, right. you, do we need an intermediary? We, we need someone, we need mentors, we need wisdom, we need people that we can confide in and, and, and help right. uh, help guide us. But the moment that you're standing up there saying, I spoke to God and here's what he told me that you guys should do, again, right. you know, it's the middleman. We don't need the middleman. Yeah. We, we need a direct conversation with whatever our God looks like and then some incredible mentors in our life to help guide us. Yeah. No, no, I completely agree. I mean, like if somebody tells me God told me to tell you, the first thing I will do is ask God for me. Like, well, I, I talk to God, so I tell you what I'm going to do. I'll just ask him. Yeah, God's and like, I never we'll said that. <laughs> yeah, and, and I've had that happen where I'm like, so Jesus, what do you think about uh, this? And uh, yeah, I, I didn't say that. And, uh, you know, I don't get it right. 100% of the time, you know, I'm, I'm figuring it out, but that's the whole journey, right? And uh, I completely agree, you know, to think that you have to have a, it's great. I have some people that I look up to, 
Um, I have some mentors in my life, great people, but I don't do everything they tell me to do either. And, you know, sometimes it works out for me. Sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it's worked out where I haven't listened and it's worked out. It's man, it's about, it's a personal journey. And I think it's so personal and just uh, building a community of people around you that can just do life with you and help you be accountable to whatever your vision or goals are moving forward. That's the important thing, right? I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing, but yeah. Absolutely. Well, speaking again of your, your school years, you ended up in, in multiple professions that are very, very physical. What were you doing athletically and sports-wise? Yeah, so I was heavily involved in uh, youth ministry and church. And then, so that took up a lot of my time. And then I played basketball in school. I played rec ball. I wanted to get involved in football. My dad was all dead set against it because of injuries and all kinds of stuff. So Basketball was kind of my backup sport. I am not built for basketball, but my dad played basketball. I got him to sign off on it. So I played basketball for three seasons, not for the school. We had a rec league in town. I enjoyed it. It was fun. Uh, that was probably athletically. That's what I did most. I was not super athletic. I was outside a lot, did a lot outside, didn't spend a lot of time inside. But as far as, um, you know, the professions I ended up in, I, I come from a family of people that serve, whether it was in the ministry or the public school system. I come from a long history of teachers and I watched my mom just give her whole life to just people and helping and and me and my brother and sister. And I just grew up with this heart to serve. And I think that's really how I ended up in the professions that I ended up in. Whatever I was doing, it was going to be some sort of service. And the army and the fire department are where I've gotten to do those two things. So, Yeah. Now, staying with your mom for a second, have you had any conversations with her, especially now that you're a father yourself, on the evolution or devolution of education through her career? Yeah, yeah, so sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talk, uh, my mom still lives down the street from me. We talk pretty regularly. And, um, you know, a lot has changed, you know, from when I was a kid till now. Um, we've had a lot of conversations about how I was raised in the religious system and the conversations that I have with God now versus I was raised back then, education, how that's changed, where she's at now, where I'm at now, how we're doing life, um, the generational differences. You know, my mom has been um my mom's been a great resource to any question that I ask, she has an answer. Well, you know, whether she is proud of it or not proud of it. Um, she's been great as far as getting information. Um, like you said, the evolution, the de-evolution of education. Um, some of it's flipped. Now there's all this technology, and now I'm helping my mom with all this technology. I mean, she called me about a phone issue yesterday, and I was laughing, you know. So, uh, you know, my mom's almost 70 now, and uh, the iPhone's not her friend all the time, but <laughs> I, I love her to death. And what is she observing as far as education, though? Are they, are, what are the things that, that she's sad about, maybe, that, you know, where we are now in 2023, and then conversely, maybe some things that she's excited about? Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, she was raised a little bit more conservative. Uh, she was raised a little bit more conservative, especially being in the church, stuff like that. So I think from where she came from or the conversations we're having, I would say uh, a more values-based education um, is probably more what she was used to. And now there's a very um, liberal, not liberal in the sense of political, but just, I guess, freer um, education. And that allows for more exploration of things that get away from, I think, core values that she would probably relate to the Christian faith because that's how she, she raised us. So those are the biggest things as far as what she's excited about. Um, 
you know, all, all I could say is that she's almost 70, but she's we're still having conversations about what her future looks like and what she's going to continue to do as far as purpose. So I think she's excited about that as far as where we're going as a society and education. I can't, I don't think we fully had that conversation yet, honestly. So, well, before we kind of walk through your career journey, with yeah, there's some mental health elements to, to your story as we progress through. Sure. One of the yeah. big aha moments that I've learned through this podcast myself is how many of us wearing uniform had you know, somewhat significant trauma in our childhood. And, and that's never yeah. in the conversation. Like, what does our foundation look like the first day we step into that profession? When you look back now with this lens that you have, are there elements of your upbringing that you would consider contributed to some of the mental health struggles later? Yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, you look at uh, how I was raised. Like I said, I love my parents. <clears throat> I think they did the absolute best they could with, with what they had. And I don't fault them for anything, especially being a dad and you know, husband myself now, but yeah, absolutely. Sure. I mean, I'm a, a product of divorce and that did play a factor, you know, later on in my life. Um, you know, there were a lot of things going on in my house where, you know, I'm not super affectionate all the time. Now, um, I look back at my childhood and there wasn't a lot of affection that I witnessed or saw my parents did a lot of things, right. And like I said, I don't fault them, but there are definitely things I can see now looking back especially within the past four or five years, everybody's kind of saying, hey, look back at your childhood and see what's affected where you're at now. And having kids of my own realizing that, you know, well, I just asked them to clean their room and they're going to be on a couch in five years because I asked them to clean their room or, you know, because you you look back and I'm starting to see 110% there were things. Um, the biggest things for me were probably, honestly, um, probably the divorce stuff. I did not see... Uh, the importance, I think, of keeping a family together. Uh, my parents got divorced. I was kind of in that 17, 18 years old. I was getting ready to leave the house anyway. I was more involved in my relationship with my girlfriend at the time who ended up marrying later. We had a baby when I was 18. So it was kind of, you know, they got divorced and I split and kind of did my own thing. And then later realizing that I really never understood the importance of marriage or keeping a family together because I hadn't had that modeled and, but neither did uh, my dad, you know, and he never had that modeled for him. And then that kind of got me diving back into how my parents raised, you know, just generations and generations, generations of, of families who were living together, same household, maybe married for 30 years, but never really connected. And, um, steep learning curve for me, you know, when I got married and I worked through a lot to stay connected, uh, to my wife and, you know, fight for my marriage and fight for everything else. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of that stuff really played a factor later on. Yeah. It's interesting because my parents got the, um, divorced exactly the same time. And it was a, it was a jarring thing. Cause firstly, when Pandora's box flies open, you realize how much of, what you perceived was your parents' relationship was actually a lie. You know, it was a facade. Oh, yeah. And then you learn all yeah. these horrible things that were happening behind the scenes. But at the same time, I don't know if you had this, a lot of my friends at school had were, you know, products of divorce. And I got to like 17, 18, and I was like, oh, shit, well, I made it then. You know, my parents are going right. to be together forever because I got it out of school. And the reality was, no, that was when it happened. And so it almost felt like, 
I don't deserve to be traumatized by it because I'm 18 now. That's not what happens yeah. anymore. When I look back yeah. again, was it a contributing factor? Absolutely. It was a horrible, horrible divorce, a lot of emotion. And, you know, I think I was fortunate enough to have some tools that helped process it subconsciously, nothing deliberate that I was doing. But was it a contributing factor? Was it a large traumatic event in my early life? Absolutely, it was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, looking back, even even now you're saying that, like, so... You know, my parents, 17, 18, like I said, I'm the oldest of three. Um, my sister was born when I was about 12. So I, I almost ended up being more of a father figure when it came to my parents working during summers and helping raise my sister. My brother's a year and a half younger than I am. When my parents got divorced, talk about trauma. We were kind of, I was best friends with my brother back then. And um, my parents got divorced. I kind of got kicked out of my house because me and my dad weren't seeing eye to eye. It was a whirlwind of situations going on back then. Took a break from going to see my dad. My brother stayed with my dad. One day I went to back to visit my brother and he started telling me stories from our childhood that had never happened. Uh, he was a completely different person. And I remember sitting there talking, all this stuff's going on in my family and I'm sitting listening to my brother and I'm almost in tears realizing that my brother that I knew is not here anymore and I have no idea what happened. So I was 18 at the time, uh, drove home that night in tears because I had no idea, just hadn't seen my brother in a couple of months. But prior to that, it was normal. You know, here I am 40 years old. My brother is, <clears throat> excuse me, 38 and a half years old right now. And he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Uh, a long time ago now, um, right after about the time my parents got divorced. And traumatic events bring these things on, from what I understand. And it's, you know, the only thing that I've been able to link it to was that event, because that's around the time that it happened. And for me, something that my wife's been helping me unpack lately is that, you know, that was almost a loss of relationship with my brother at the time. You know, he's been very different, you know, ever since that. Love him. We're not nearly as close as as we used to be, especially when we were younger. Um, but I hear people talk about their brother now and, oh, we're going to go to the baseball game or do this or do all these things. And my brother's struggling with a mental illness that hit when my parents got divorced when we were, you know, 17, 18 years old. So, but so, yeah, it's definitely a lot impacts you you know, moving forward that, and there's a lot in there that you don't even realize half the time, but yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. No, I had an older sister, but she was already out the house when it happened. I was the oldest one that was still there. And I watched the impact on, I got two younger brothers and a younger sister. You know, I, I watched it on my older sister, but she'd already kind of fractured from, from the family home, not, not us as a, you know, a family structure, but she'd moved out and she was, I think 15 or 16, quite young. Um, right. but yeah. And so, you know, even now I'm 48. So they're, um, my younger siblings are 46 and 44 and I still see the ripple effect of some of that unaddressed trauma now, you know, so it's, right. it's crazy. And so it, it really does. I hope this generation that, that we're, uh, seeing coming up now with all the education and, and now finally some transparency in the mental health conversations, will maybe have the tools to really make sure they're in the rela relationship before they just jump in. Because I think a lot of our generation was like, you graduate school, you get a job, you get married, you have kids, you know? And yeah, so that's what I did. Yeah. yeah. So we're well, speaking of that then. So you mentioned about, you know, meeting your wife in high school walk me through that relationship, the marriage, the child, and then your journey into the military. 
Yeah. So, man, I met my wife and my first wife in 1996, uh, just through a group of friends. We were both involved in the same church and uh, she was the pretty girl in the group and, you know, became really good friends, started hanging out more. You know, next thing I knew we were hanging out one on one and um, eventually asked her at some point if she wanted to start dating. That was probably about three years, three years after we were friends. So it was 1999 where we started dating right around the Christmas season. Cause it's a perfect time to ask any girl out. I mean, it's Christmas season and we're in high school, you know, I'm in love, <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, we were high school sweethearts and, um, we were, like I said, we we're both in church, started spending a lot of time together, probably way too much time. And there were people telling us, Hey, you guys are spending way too much time together. You're headed down the path where you're going to end up parents very, very young age. And that's not a great idea. And we said, we're teenagers. We know everything. We will take care of it. Thank you for the advice, but no thank you. And a year after being together, we had a baby. Um, so I was 18 years old, and um, she was 17. She did her senior year pregnant at the local high school here, which uh, was challenging for her. I mean, I'd, I'd have been a year out of high school, and then she was going into her final year. So very challenging time uh, was not planned by any means. Uh, both sets of parents weren't exactly happy. And we just decided that we were going to make it work. You know, I uh, I was very much in love with her at the time. And I figured, hey, uh, I don't care how hard this is. We're going to do it. And I don't think I knew at the time uh, how hard it was going to be. But um, I was a kid that had a kid. So we decided it was not in our best interest to get married right away. Um, we did start taking the advice of other people because we said, we're having a baby. We're going to get married. And um, her dad was very much against that. And my parents were like, hey, it's just not a good idea. You know, just this is one unplanned thing that you guys can make work. Let's take it slow. So we did. We took advice and we, we took it slow. I didn't know what I was going to do moving forward for my career. Like I said, I had always wanted to do the military, fire department, police, something of that nature. I wanted to serve. My dad was a teacher, didn't really do time in the military. My uncle said, done some time in the military. My granddad was in the army. And um, so I was a really young dad trying to find direction in and out of school, working at the local hardware store. I called the local hardware store it was home Depot back at the time. So I guess it's not local hardware store, but, uh, yeah. So anyway, I joined the Army National Guard out of really not knowing what to do. And I had planned to go active duty, um, you know, if I enjoyed it. Well, I joined the National Guard. I was in for about, that was 2003. And I got back from basic training, decided we would get engaged because I kind of had a direction now. I was going to do the National Guard and then go active duty. Well, you know, National Guard is obviously part-time. So I started applying for police departments and fire departments for when I got engaged. So January 2005 is when I started getting callbacks for the um, Norfolk Fire Department where I had applied. But I was also in the National Guard at the time. At the same time, I was getting callbacks for the National Guard. Um, I'm sorry, for the fire department. I was in the National Guard. We're planning a wedding. The National Guard had also called me and said, hey, there's a possibility of you getting deployed in the fall time. So I was went from being 18, really not sure what I was going to do, in and out of college, knew I had to do something with my life, joined the National Guard. I wanted to marry my high school sweetheart, but I had to have some kind of job. Joined 
you know, applied for fire departments, got hired, found out I was getting deployed, got married the summer of 2005 and was on a plane to Iraq um, that fall slash winter, three months after me getting married. In the midst of that, we also found out I was pregnant or my wife was pregnant with our second child who would be born while I was deployed after I it's whirlwind of stuff was happening back then. Um, crazy time. So I'll pose a question that I do to everyone that was deployed. <clears throat> and the, the preface is always, we get a very polarized view of war. So you get the, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out, stack bodies mentality, or you get the, they're all a bunch of baby killers. Let's just, you know, hold hands and sing Kumbaya. In the middle are the men and women or children that we send off to war to fight for our country. And it's those voices, I think, that are so important to hear. So two-part question. The first part, regardless of the politics that sent you to the specific combat zones that you found yourself, was there an aha moment where you found yourself, you know, witnessing maybe atrocities or realizing that there were some horrific people that needed to be taken care of? Yeah, 100%. 100%. You know, like I said, um, I'm glad you brought that up because I was very much not into the politics. I wanted to serve. It was my choice. I, I signed on the dotted line. I don't feel I was brainwashed. And I was over there and I had the opportunity to do some really cool things with some really cool people. And absolutely, you know, we were, I was part of uh, briefings and uh, missions and there were people doing bad things that I would consider 110% evil that needed to be dealt with in some manner or another. And I don't regret being part of that uh, by any means. No. So absolutely not politics, not involved. There are, evil people in this world and um you know on, on the opposite of evil is good and people have their different definition of how good or what's good or do you pay evil with evil i can just tell you there are evil people in this world and i do believe i contributed to um helping sort some of that out i hope that answers your question no it doesn't i don't know if you wanted to elaborate but i think that people <sighs> I don't think that people are aware of some of the horrific things that are done by some of these extremists. And I want to be clear, like we, we have yeah. this misinformation that we were at war with the country of Iraq or the country of Afghanistan. The reality right. was there were extremists in those countries, you know, terrorizing their own people. So I don't know if you wanted to kind of, you know, paint a picture of any, any, any of the some, you know, we've had people talking about, you know, people throwing gay men off uh, roofs and you know special needs people being chained up in the back gar garden so some of these these perspectives or lenses that the average american or englishman or australian wouldn't understand was going on in some of these places that our soldiers served yeah yeah so yeah absolutely so i was with a uh with an aviation battalion we were attached to the marines while i was over there it's the first force recon they do some pretty cool stuff and uh basically i would say their version of the seals so we provided them with a lot of transport when it came to um the 53s which is a really big helicopter i flew in the uh-60 i was a door gunner slash crew chief and the 60s were the size helicopter they needed to land in the places that they needed to land in uh, we could get in and out real fast if they needed rated a building that we were the people that did that we came in and we helped them with that so we would get these mission briefings um, before every mission, obviously, and kind of tell us, hey, this is the target. This is who we're going after. And they would give us names that I won't share. 
of these people and they would kind of give us a rundown of what these people are responsible for of what they've done you know if the names that i would mention were pretty similar names that they would hear in the news um back here on a regular basis back then um where these people were terrorizing their own people killing their own people you know and then we're obviously involved over there in a war and they don't care who gets in the way if the americans are in the way they're gonna kill us too so yeah um without elaborating too much on names and and places um, you know, there were some, some missions that we went on and there were, you know, uh, some special people that were in the helicopter alive and some special people that were not in the helicopter, uh, alive that went back to the base. But yeah, I don't, I guess I don't have any regrets and I don't know that people understand, you know, I was very, I was very, when I went to war, I went to war and I, I just, I really was able to. Uh, completely detach myself, which we'll get into later. I completely, uh, in order to be a good soldier and function at the level that I I felt I had to function at, I completely detached myself to anything that was back home because I really did believe that I was doing something good. And I still believe that, you know, I, I still believe that there's not a day goes by that I regret uh, my deployment, my assignments, or the things I've done without deployed. The only thing I regret is not getting help uh upon my return from theater that's the my, probably one of my biggest regrets but yeah so the other side of the coin the other part of that question another thing that we don't hear about on this, the news is all the 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 acts of kindness and compassion that exist amid these battlegrounds whether it's by our own soldiers whether it's the native people so what are some of the stories or things that you remember from that from a kindness and compassion side of things yeah. So I was in aviation. So I saw a lot of Iraq from the air. So it wasn't a lot of me interacting with uh, people on the ground, like infantry or maybe special forces would. Um, but we flew around a lot. We saw a lot. We did a lot. Uh, it made me realize like not everybody in these countries is bad. There were normal people. Like We would fly over villages and towns and people would just be gardening or there'd be kids playing soccer in the street or people are waving to us. You know, you know, at, at night, some of those towns were different. Nobody was waving. People were shooting. Um, but there's good and evil in every town. And I, I, I just I didn't come to the conclusion that, you know, um, I mean, I've heard some people play just just drop a nuke on it and turn it into a parking lot, you know, and I don't I don't think that's a possibility. Um, sure, we could do something like that, but there are good people everywhere just because they don't look like me, talk like me, act like me, believe what I believe. You know, these people just like me are raised in their environment and you are a product of your environment until you maybe don't like it or you want to experience change or this is your life. You know, I think I never try to push my view of America on people. This was how they were living. And so there were definitely some good, I mean, the soldiers, I served with some, you know, good men and women i have a, a a quick funny story about we were on a mission one night and we were just doing a scout mission in the middle of the night under night vision goggles just looking for anything awry we had some special forces guys in the back if anything was wrong we were going to put them down they were going to take care of it i'm on my gun i'm staring out the window i'm focused i'm listening to the the pilots up front and somebody keeps tapping me on the shoulder on my left and i'm i'm focused i'm kind of pushing him away and uh, keeps tapping me on my shoulder, and then he grabs my hand, and I'm like, "What does this guy want?" So I kind of let him take my hand. We can't see; it's pitch black. And he puts something in my hand. He just kind of shakes it and leaves it. 
I kind of feel around in my hand for a second and it's Jolly Ranchers. He was just trying to give me some candy. It was one of these special forces guys that had some candy and he was eating candy and he was just trying to hand me candy. And I think I've never forgotten that story for me because in the midst of everything that we're doing, I was probably six months into my deployment. We're, we're in it now. I don't know if I'm coming home. It kind of brought me back to a very human moment of just a dude sitting in the front seat was eating some candy and he just wanted to share it with the guy next to him. And uh, yeah, so I mean, yeah, we're, we're humans, right? They send us to war, but we're still humans, you know, and uh, I can't imagine what a lot of the guys like, you know, guys and girls in Vietnam that came back. I can't imagine how that felt, you know, but uh, I feel like I got treated, you know, like a human, but um, yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. So now we talked about the transition out and compartmentalizing what before you entered the fire service did you have any acute events did you do you lose you know people that you serve with or were there any kind of um career moments that you had to bury down yeah so um we did have a guy we weren't we weren't super close it just kind of brought things into perspective at my unit um his name was sergeant booker and he he was the guy that was always smiling he would check out vehicles if you needed to for the weekend and he came into theater later and <laughs> excuse me, his helicopter uh, got shot down by a RPG. And uh, that kind of put things into perspective. It was somebody that I knew, you know, you see names and, um, you know, you see names and they're just names. And then uh, I think one thing that really set it in perspective for me was uh, December 2006. I, it was Christmas Eve and we were just going on a regular routine mission. We were heading across the country, just doing troop support that night. Nothing special, just getting soldiers from one side of Iraq to the other side of Iraq. And we were diverted to a small town outside of our base where they were experiencing um, snipers on a regular basis. Well, one of our own had succumbed to sniper fire and we were to go to the base to transport the soldier back to our main base so he could be flown home uh, to um, you know be with his family. So that was probably uh, one of the most sobering experiences. We landed and uh, being a crew chief, you get out, open the doors. Um, you know, as we open the doors, there's two lines of soldiers. It's probably, you know, midnight at this point, and they're loading a flag draped casket into the back of the helicopter. They push it in. They all salute. It's, I mean, it's, you could hear a pin drop at this point. We shut the door, we pick up, fly back to the base. Um, they remove the soldier salute, put him in a truck. We watch him drive off and we just continued on our mission for the rest of the night. And for me, it was Christmas Eve and my family was home and I'm looking at this, uh, you know, lady gentleman, I'm not sure who was in the casket and that's, so that's changed Christmas Eve forever for me. You know, as far as that's what I think about on Christmas Eve is, is that and things kind of changed for me moving forward from there uh, to even think back like, hey, we just flew out on our mission that night. And, you know, that guy wasn't from my unit. Uh, I never served with that person. I was uh, in the same, you know, I was in the United States military, obviously. And that was what I considered a brother or a sister. And it kind of solidified that my next day was uh, not guaranteed you know, if you will. And I would say I didn't handle that in a good way where I made 
some poor decisions on my deployment moving forward. Um, you know, things like, uh, you know, I'll just, maybe I'll, I won't wear my vest out to go here, but I'll wear it here. Or, you know, just, just the poor decisions of, I'm probably not going to make it back anyway. And, um, that, that was so close at that point to where I could be home. We were good. We were supposed to go home in the next three months. And it, it was almost this more heightened sense of, I really want to get home but the stakes just got really high. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. No, it doesn't. Actually, I was just having a conversation with one of my, my, my firefighter partner from California the other day. Again, through these conversations, I've been in my enlightenment over the last six and a half years has been mind blowing. I mean, talking to all these, these incredible people from all walks of life. But one of the big aha moments was you have that legend in the military, in the fire service, whoever it is. Oh man, this this building was about to, you know, backdraft and he came running in and, you know, he came out with the kids under his arms and, you know, that's heroism and we give awards and, and all that stuff. But then you take a step back with this mental health lens now and you're like, was that just absolute courage or mentally had that person got to the point where they diminished the value of their own life and they were actually being reckless now? A lot of people that were died, but the ones that made it out were heralded as heroes. So it's interesting when you hear this, you know, a lot of these guys on the battlefield, like you said, they're not wearing their vest anymore. They go running towards the machine gun nest. And if it works out, beautiful. But the converse, the other side is that, you know, they walk through a door and then the building flashes or they stand up out the trench and they take one straight to the head. So it's it's really interesting when you hear the the mental health journey and how that parallels that self-preservation element. Yeah, no, it is. It's interesting, you know, because it goes one or two ways. Like, like I said, it, it became a heightened sense of awareness in the sense where I knew I, I'm going home soon. But the other side of it was I may never make it home. And, um, mentally, I think I had trapped myself there in a sense to where this was my life now. And, um, there was a chance that I could know no more of this life or no other, or no other life. I could, there was no guarantee I was, excuse me, ever going back home. And I think, um, yeah, it's interesting. Like you said, it's, is it bravery or is it a complete disregard for our own life? And and it looks like bravery to everybody else. We look like the hero, but are, are we the hero or have we completely written off the fact that, okay, whatever happens, happens, I guess we'll just see. And um, I would like to say that I'm not so much that anymore, you know, that I would take more calculated risks. Now I'm definitely a risk taker. Um, you know, which is probably why I do what I do. And there's definitely a switch that flips in my brain where I'm not thinking, oh my gosh, I have a wife and kids. I cannot go into this building. Um, I've thought about that stuff later. Like, wow, I was really in a bad spot. Thankful I made it out because I do want to come home, you know, to my wife and kids and training and fitness and all that go into that stuff. But um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've made some great decisions. And I made some poor decisions off the fact that I thought, well, hey, there's no guarantee I'll go home, you know, go big or go home. But it was go big because I might not go home, you know. So, yeah, absolutely. 
Well, that's, that's an interesting perspective. So thank you. Well, speaking of going home, did you, when you returned from that deployment, was that when you transitioned into the fire service initially? Yeah. So I got hired in 2005 with the fire service, July and October. Uh, I was in the academy in 2005. That's when I got my notice to be deployed. So then I deployed. So I did about three months in the academy, got deployed. I was deployed with the army. Um, my total time of deployment was about 16 and a half months. So that's almost a year and a half. And so I was away from my family for a pretty much an entire year and a half. I got a two week break in there to fly home, you know, come home for two weeks. Then you go back to Iraq, which is, uh, we would talk about that a little bit. I wish I'd never come home. You know, it was, it was a really pick me up to come home. And then when I went back, I, I, I was at a hole, you know, the rest of the time I was there, but, uh, it was a long deployment. I got back 2007, took some time off and I transitioned right into the fire department after about three months. In that three months, I had no counseling, no, hey, you should get some help. There was, I don't remember anything about PTS, PTSD. Hey, you should talk to somebody. Hey, you should see a counselor. Hey, you might experience some problems. I don't even know that I would have listened. I just wanted to be home to my wife. My son was born while I was gone. I had a four-year-old daughter at the time. And uh, after that three months, I jumped right back in the fire department. And, um, I just, I stayed busy. So there was no time to tackle anything, uh, mental health. My wife and I were so excited to just see each other. There was no talk of, Hey, do you need help? My mom was probably the only person that noticed I was a completely different person and would ask me very kindly on a consistent basis. Hey, are you okay? And I would say, yes, I don't understand why I keep asking. She said, because you're, I love you, but you're a different person. And I know war changes people and, um, I'm fine. I don't need any help. You know, I'll be fine. This is, this is the soldier's life, you know, and that's how I lived. I lived like that. And, um, but I was in the fire department serving again. I was in the academy and I had at least four months of that left, uh, almost five months. And, I was enjoying it. You know, I was back to camaraderie, back to service, back to the high speed, high pace. You know, I went from flying around in helicopters every single night to being deployed, to coming back, dealing with a wife who was finishing school, a four-year-old daughter and a nine-month-old son who I had no idea what to do. And my, my wife was finishing school. I was now at home with my kids Two weeks ago, I was in a helicopter flying behind a gun, and now I'm looking down at my son who's pulling on my leg crying, and my wife asked me to install blinds, and I'm staring out the window wanting to go back to Iraq because that was familiar. And, you know, all my family wanted me was to be home, and that was all I wanted while I was there. But I was had such an imbalance that I really, then I poured myself into the fire department because it just felt similar, very similar. But yeah. Now I heard you talking to Jim Moss on the Firefighter Success podcast about the dichotomy between being a leader in the military and then being a probie in or a rookie in the fire service. So what was that inner 
struggle like for you? Because of course we're humble, and of course, you know, you you know, you're the elephant, as they say, small mouth, big ears when you first enter. But I've always also hated that concept of, you know, we don't care what you did in the last apartment or your last job, whatever. I think that's absolute bullshit. There's so much value that a new person can bring. Learn the way that you're supposed to do it in that fire department first, but of course, you know, add things. If you were in construction or you were, you know, a mariner or whatever it was that you did, there's going to be things that you can teach us. I don't care if you've been on, you know, 10, 10 years or a day. Um, so, you know, what was that like with all the different um, personalities? Some probably were very humble and, and you know, very accepting and some were probably giant dick bags. So how did you kind of deal with that transition from leadership in the military to being absolute grassroots in the fire service? Yeah. So, I mean, in the military, you're just taught from the ground up, you're a leader. They just kind of tell you you are and you adopt it and you say, yes, I am. And you go out there and do it. Some people don't. I did. And, you know, I adopted, you know, the leadership principles, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless courage, honor, integrity, you know, selfless, all these things. I, I just, I ate it up. And um, so when I got in the fire department, brand new rookie, right back from deployment, but I'm in the academy now. I'm brand new on the street. Um, it was easy for me in the sense where I had started new places before and I knew I was at the bottom and I was okay with that for, I guess, I don't know why I was okay with that. I guess I just understood that that was my place. And I knew I had stuff to offer. Um, I just also understood they didn't need to hear about it right away. And that actions really would speak louder than words. Uh, they knew a lot of the guys that I got stationed with initially, they were in my original academy with me. So they knew that I had been deployed in their academy. They had been on the street while I was deployed. So I will say I did get a certain amount of respect as far as he's not the normal rookie, but I also got treated like a rookie. But I think the only reason they gave me the respect that they that I didn't deserve, I would say, is because I didn't go in there demanding respect in the sense of, hey, look, uh, you know, I was just deployed and we did some pretty cool stuff. So I'm going to need you to listen. Like, I, I realized I didn't know anything when it came to the fire department, you know, whereas the military for me was a very different enemy. Uh, fire and uh, soldiers that are trying to kill you are very two very different things. And I realized I did not know anything about the fire service. I did not know anything about patching up gunshot wounds. I worked at a very busy company early in my career, and I had every opportunity to learn what I did not know. And I did not know a lot. So the transition was, I really just, I really just led where I was at in the sense where if there was a gap, I filled it, but I wasn't telling people, Hey, look at me. I'm such a leader. I was in the army. Look at me. I just kind of kept my head down, did what I was supposed to do, learn what I was supposed to learn, said a lot of stuff I was not supposed to say. You know, I you know, I stuck my foot in my mouth a lot. I 110% know exactly what my foot tastes like because I've tasted it a thousand times. And um, so the transition was hard in the sense where uh, I felt like I had so much to offer, but it just wasn't time. And... I was able to work that out. I really, honestly, I think I was blessed with a really good crew. I think it could have gone a whole different way if I had a different crew. I had a very good captain who was very understanding, 
um, wanted us to go home, knew our names, knew our wives' names, knew our kids' names. He really brought us together as a crew. We were a bunch of young guys. You know, we talked a little bit about Jared Sergi earlier. We, you know, we grew up together in the fire service. Bunch of young guys, didn't know a whole lot, just eager to learn about fire, EMS, whatever it was, be busy. And I think it was really my crew, honestly, back then who kind of molded me as far as we realize you have leadership qualities. Let us teach you the job. You're going to have to keep that stuff around, though. Don't get frustrated because you're going to need to use it. And if I, honestly, if I wouldn't have had that crew, I don't know that I'd be where I am today without those guys. They were really were beneficial in helping me you know, move forward as a leader in the department. See, it's interesting. I've worked for four places in the end. So when I, for example, came back from California to Florida, Orange County, I'd been on a tiller truck company on the West Coast, you know, cutting on roofs, you know, all the time. Um, the the bar was held super, super high. They would lose about a, a quarter of each rookie class through attrition because if you didn't reach that bar, you were out. Um, and uh, then I come back and it was just, you know, you, you see some of the chess beaters and it's so hard when you've been around real leaders you know and there were some oh, phenomenal yeah. ones in that department don't get me wrong but some people will be you know beating their chest and you're just like oh my god you know you watch them completely fuck up an evolution and then like you said you'd, you'd have to i'd put my foot in my mouth just so i didn't say anything you know put both my feet in my mouth but it's so hard the older you are and the more experience you have and i never had a huge amount of experience I, I transitioned out of 14 years it's not a veteran in my opinion in the fire service but when you've been in some real high high up tempo you know areas of cities and, and crews and then you go to somewhere maybe where their standard is very low it's hard because someone may have bugles on their their shirt but it doesn't mean they're a leader you know they may have 30 years on doesn't mean they're a good firefighter so right the deeper into my career i got and the more times i changed i still kept my mouth shut but it was harder and harder i think my jaw muscles are you know i could probably deadlift 400 now based on how <laughs> how hard it was to keep my mouth shut yeah. towards the end yeah, no, absolutely. No, I mean, you know, I, I got there and like I said, brand new, learned a lot, did a lot, got to see a lot, you know, things that things that I wanted to see, things I didn't want to see. We got to see it all, do it all. And, um, you know, we got to look, I got to the point myself where I was five, six years in and I started beating my own chest like I knew everything, you know, and uh, the thing now, the term is 635 or, you know, you got six years in, you think you got 35 years experience. And I was, I definitely had you know, those moments. And, um, yeah, I thought everywhere at that first station I was at in the city, I thought everybody was like that. I thought everywhere was like that. I thought everybody had a, an amazing fire captain, you know, that, that knew both sides of the job fire and EMS. I thought everybody, you know, got along like we did. I thought everybody hung out like we did, you know, and I didn't do it all right. And not, not all my time spent at that station that, you know, I made great and healthy choices in and out of life, but, you know, I thought that was how everything was done. And I would go to other places and realize, okay, it's done a little bit different over here. You know, I joke and say that I was uh, homeschooled for the first six years of my career. And then I got transferred and realized, oh, this is what public school is like, you know? And um, yeah, no, so it's, uh, you know, it's, I'm a little bit older now, you know, I left, you know, I left that station back in 2012 and um, still in the same fire department, different station. I'm working three miles from the same station, but three miles from the same station. And I am a completely different person now. And, uh, I'm able to, uh, like you just said, I'm a little bit older. I'm able to keep my mouth shut 
more. And I think it's more about this is one of those jobs where it's hard to hide. Uh, you will be exposed at some point. And instead of doing a lot of talking now, I just try and let my actions speak for themselves when we get on scene. I don't uh I do, I don't need you to tell me how great of a fireman you are. I won't tell you how great of a fireman I am. We will just get on scene and do our job and one of us will be exposed and if we are exposed, it'll be about what we do after that that really proves I mean who we truly are. So, yeah. Yeah. But well, we can always take a selfie in front of the bird outhouse at the end though. Oh, 100%, you know. <laughs> burn down to the ground and somebody'll bring us cookies and you know, whether we burn it down or save it, somebody's going to bring us cookies and a sandwich. You know? <laughs> when you talk about that first um, crew, I, I was very, very fortunate enough. I was talking to, uh, I think it was Mike Gagliano, or Galliano, excuse me. Um, and they talk about the Rockstar Firehouse. I think that's the term he uses. Um, the Rockstar crew. I had that hands down in Anaheim, Station One. Um, we had this is an amazing crew. I had that salty, salty, you know, captain there that probably aligns with what you had in your first experience. And it was short lived. I ended up having to transition back to, to Florida to the East Coast. And then shortly after that, my captain retired and my truck partner actually got hurt his back very, very badly. So, you know, it never would have been the same even if I had stayed. However, the next 10 years of my career, I chased what was what I would consider my rock star crew. And it always, it held the bar so high for me that I still pushed to try and get there. But I never found that true selfless dynamic again. Serve some great people, but not that whole cohesive crew that we had there. Was that first one for you, that rock star crew, or have you been able to find that again since? Yeah, I would say, so that crew is definitely special. Um, if we're going to define it as a rock star crew, I'd 110% say that was my rock star crew. I tried to pursue it. I can't, I kind of, you know, exactly what you just said. Um, I went to the next house, but I was very quickly told, Hey, this is not station two. This is a different station. And in very nice terms and very caring, uh, it was kind of, you will comply. And um, I honestly, that was a good thing for me in the sense where they taught me a lot about balance in the fire department. Um, when I was at station two, you know, my wife at the time very much questioned where I did I love the fire service more than I loved her. And I really didn't have good arguments for that at the time because my life was a little bit out of balance. And um, 100%, that was my rock star crew. I think I chased it for a little while until I realized that my captain there did not raise us in the fire department the way he raised us to always chase that rock star crew. He raised us to develop people to feel like they could be part of that rock star crew. He raised us to be those leaders that go out there in the fire service. And that if you can't find that rock star crew, that you make that station, that rock star crew. And that's, I think that's what I started to realize as I went to these different stations was <clears throat> not that I was going there, and I'm going to fix everything here. There's there's something wrong. But if I saw an issue or something that was, you know, the way that we did it, it wasn't the same station. But why did that work for us? You know, was it the relationship that he built with us? Was it the camaraderie? You know, is, is there more than one, one, right, what, one right way to do things? Yes, absolutely. But I think I started to realize if I chase that one crew, it's never going to happen. And I'll just be unhappy the rest of the time I'm in the fire department. So... I started to do what I believe 
that I don't even know he was doing was he showed us how to be leaders and how to develop and influence other people just by caring about them. And I think through that, um, I try to develop that. I try to uh, pursue that more than pursuing the rock star crew, if you will. Yeah. And what is your perception on um, something that I'm, I've been told so many times in my my career? Oh, if you want to if you want to improve the space, you have to promote. Now, I've always disagreed with that personally because I I had this plan of ten years as a firefighter, ten years as a, as a captain. If I was still in California, and then five as a BC. What actually happened is I loved the firefighter position so much I stayed that rank my entire career. I just I didn't want to be at the panel. I didn't want to have a radio in my hand. I wanted to be inside, you know kicking doors in or cutting holes or whatever it was so you've obviously you know written a lot now about leadership talk to me about your philosophy on on leadership versus rank and or uh time on yeah 100 percent. so i am 110 percent a believer in informal leadership and i think it is the backbone of the fire service uh that's basically like you just said you put it really simple it's leadership without rank I think that is really what makes the fire service just by way of numbers. We have way more firefighters in the fire service all around the country than we do officers. That's really easy math. If you look around as far as who's on what truck, it's, it's the leaders in the back of the truck. It's the jump seat firefighters, the backstep guys and girls. I really think these guys that are stepping up to the plate, leading in the areas that they're good at in these fire firehouses and helping their fire officers be successful that's what's carrying the fire service. If you're that backstep firefighter, that jump seat firefighter, I 100% believe you are carrying the fire service. And you can have an amazing career at 25 years, 30 years, 35 years, and be an awesome contribution to the fire department as far as leadership goes. That rank to me is now a responsibility to lead. It does not make you a leader. 110% does not make you a leader. I took the promotional exam a couple of years ago. They tossed me a badge and there was no magic moment in there that said, you're now a lieutenant and you are now a leader. I truly believe it was the years of hard work that I put into my position, my reputation, my credibility, and not all perfect, being authentic and being honest at the informal letter level, at that backseat level, that's what prepared me to be responsible to lead. Now they pay me to be responsible to lead firefighters. Before, I wasn't getting paid, but there are so many men and women out there right now that are leading from the jump seat. And as a as a lieutenant, I still, still consider myself a brand new lieutenant. I've been promoted three years now. I rely so heavily on the guys in the jump seat and the girls in the jump seat in my station. It's not even funny. When I was in the military, it was all about informal leadership. The majority of platoons are made up of non-commissioned officers. They rely heavily on their enlisted men and women to get the job done. And when I jumped in the fire service, I carried that same mentality over to there. And I never joined and said, I'm going to be the informal leader. For me, I wanted to be that go-to guy in the house. If you needed something done, I wanted to take care of it. If there was a leadership thing that needed to be done, I wanted to do it. If there was a gap to fill, I wanted to do it. Like I said, I have not done everything right, but... When people started coming to me that were my superiors and my bosses saying, hey, you're the go-to guy. Hey, thanks for being there. Hey, you're the informal leader in the station. I wasn't, I didn't deem myself this title, you know, so it wasn't me walking around saying, hey, I'm the informal leader. Look at my name. It says informal leader above firefighter. That's not, that's not what this is, you know, so leadership without rank, 110% possible. There are people that are out there that are doing it. They're doing it effectively. 
And they're doing it better than some of the officers that we have out there in these positions. You know, no discredit. Um, if you're in an officer position and you're struggling to lead, there are a million books out there and classes you can take to get better. But if you have a guy or girl in your station who is gifted in leadership and they are not promoted, um, I think it would behoove you to work closely with that individual and let them help you. You know, at the end of the day, this is a team sport. This is 110% a team sport. We are doing this together. And to have people at every level that can lead, it's so important. I think about what would happen if my entire crew was passionate about leadership and maybe a different area in the firehouse and I let them all lead in those areas. Well, every area of the firehouse is now tackled. I can't do everything as a leader. I'm not going to catch everything. And honestly, I'm responsible to lead at this point. But when they gave me that badge, it was all the work I put into there. And now I could exercise um, the the things at a different level, these leadership you know, responsibilities at a different level. But it hasn't been that much different in the sense where I have more paperwork I have to do now. It's not a ton, but I'm responsible to do some paperwork. I'm responsible to do some reports. And now I'm responsible to take my crew where they need to go. That's what they pay me for. Before, I wasn't responsible for it. I wasn't getting paid for it, but I was attempting to do that. So at some point, I decided I did want to move up in the fire department. I, you know, I felt like I had something to offer. It took me a long time because just like you, I said, man, I'm, I'm actually enjoying my time as a firefighter riding in the back. I'm not responsible. I'm not quote unquote in charge. I have a good foundation, base knowledge of the job. Early on, I took the test a few times, didn't take it serious. Glad I did not get promoted because I was not ready to be an officer at that time. Um, by the time I actually got promoted, I had 15 years on the job. And I think I really built, built credibility as somebody who, you know, screwed up, did well, recovered. A lot of people knew a lot of my personal story in the fire department. You can't keep a lot out of the fire department if you're in the fire department. And um, I think 15 years built me credibility as a firefighter to where I, when I got tossed that badge, I had earned more respect as a man. And I wasn't worried about um, just earning respect because I was being called lieutenant now. Because the last thing I wanted was, hey, you're promoted. Here's this badge. I didn't want people just calling me sir to call me sir. I wanted the respect, I think, as a man was more important to me than respect the badge would give me. So, yeah. I love that quote from Band of Brothers. You salute the rank, not the man. Oh, and such a great scene mm -hmm. when that happens, too. Oh, I mean, yeah, that was a very vindicating scene. Yeah. <laughs> I could relate to great. it deeply. Yeah. Um, well, just speaking of that for a second, if you were king for the day with this background, the fire service and your military background, what would you add to the promotional process to try and implant more opportunities to cultivate leadership over and above simple academic fire officer classes? Uh, so I would probably do more extensive interviews with people. I think we have um, I think extensive interviews to the sense of making sure people understand what the job entails. I don't think we're really explaining to our future officers what the job entails. I don't think we're explaining that leadership is actually about people. And if you are not a people person, you should probably not be in a leadership position. And I think interviews that will, um, I'll use the term make or break people in the sense of we need to be asking real questions, not a certain set of questions because HR gives us a list. We really need to find out, are these men and women actually cut out 
to be responsible to lead the people that are under them, um, classes or some sort of development program prior to being promoted, not just a test that we had to memorize uh, a list of questions and an assessment center where we memorize a system that we will never use, but we have to take this assessment center to get a good score. Because once you're tossed that badge, that's it. So I think if I was king for a day, honestly, I would focus heavily on training my firefighters on leadership, all of them, the entire department, whatever that looks like. I think every department across the country, across the globe has got to understand the importance of informal leadership and training your firefighters at that level. I think what's happening is we're waiting until they are two years from promotion and we say, jump in these classes. You have to take these five classes. We have this officer development program. If we truly train our men and women in the fire service to take care of each other, cultivate leadership from the academy throughout their career, there will be no crucial officer development program that we have to push them through because we will have created leaders. And the only thing now is we're handing them a badge and paying them to be responsible to lead these men and women. So if I was king for a day, I would really focus heavily on training leadership from the beginning of the academy all the way up until when these people are taking a promotional exam, I, as the chief, already know I have provided them every opportunity possible, whether it's classes, training, in-house classes, in-house programs, whatever it looks like. I think a lot of the time we, uh, there's a lot of stuff out there, right? You can read your own books. You can go to your own conferences. Hey guys, if you want to go out there and get it. And that there are some departments that are really proactive as far as training goes, but King for a day, my focus would be training everybody to lead. And then the burden is way less heavy when it comes to now you're promoted. The learning curve won't be as steep and you will already know the expectations that I want you to live up to. It won't be, well, how come you're failing at this? Well, I never had any training. Well, that can't be an excuse if I've been training you your whole career. So King for a day. Love it. That reminds me of, uh, I had a guy, Roger Shai, who's a police chief in Idaho, I believe. Um, very embedded in Echelon Front, Jocko and, and Leif's uh, organization. And they do the online leadership training, I think for all ranks. But um, I think there's a there's a definitely an embedded element when it comes to promotion. But one thing I also love with them is they have a fitness assessment and you get extra points for your promotional process if you excel on the fitness side too, which I love because now you've taken the leadership and development side, but you've also taken that fitness and ownership because to me, if you're going to lead in the fire service, you need to physically be able to do the job as well. And what sadly we see is this kind of devolution physically. And to be fair, the environment a lot of us work in is setting us up to fail physically but you are still throwing on your gear and you need to be able to leave from the front and make it to the top of that building or that high rise if you're going to lead a you know a, a a truck company or an engine company of men and women behind you you have to be the one forging at the front yes 100 i am i am 100 for a fitness test when it comes to excuse me uh promotion i don't believe uh you know for me fitness is just important I want to do this job and I don't just want to do this job and retire. I want to do this job and be doing things after I retire. So fitness is important. Wellness is important. I want to play with my grandkids one day when my kids have kids and I don't want to be the granddad that's sitting in a chair and can't move and they just sit on my lap and we watch TV. You know, I want to go play paintball with my grandson and do some cool things. So fitness is huge. And I think it should 110% be part of the promotional exam. I 
do not understand how I can expect my guys to do something that I know I can't do. I think when it comes to a piece of equipment that I may need to learn or I don't know, they can show me. They can sit me down and, hey, Lieutenant, let me walk you through this. Hey, me, hey Lieutenant, let me walk you through that. But when it comes to uh, an officer, if you will, that I know for a fact cannot make it to the fifth story of a building, the building is 20 stories, it's in his first due area. It's not that he would struggle to get there and we wouldn't all be tired. I know for a fact on floor three, he wouldn't make it. Or I know he will do everything he can to not enter that building. And I think it is asinine that a uh, executive level of leadership would expect uh, firefighters to follow that person into battle. You know, if this were a battlefield and this were war and that person stood up and said, follow me into battle, I would probably not follow them. You know, if I'm looking at the same scene on a battlefield and I'm taking the fact that you're out of shape, which shows me your level of personal accountability is probably not there um, as far as the job goes. And I'm not talking about, you don't have to be a fitness stud, right? There are people out there that are natural athletes. I'm just talking about coming to work every day, putting in the work. I don't care what shape or size you are because I've seen some guys that are pretty large individuals that can still do this job and do it well because they take their fitness seriously. But I, I have a, I told somebody the other day, I gave a seminar and I said, it's not personal, but it's personal. It, it does get personal when you're riding on the truck with, um, you know, just coworkers, if you will. But then if you have a officer who is now in charge of leading his crew, not setting an example. And when you know for a fact that person cannot uh, do their job, then um, there's a difference between if you are physically able, I can teach you. If you are not physically able, it doesn't matter how much I teach you, you're not physically able. And we do have people that are not physically able that we promote all the time. I don't know why. And I do not have a solid answer for as to why we will not stop. And we do not have a fitness assessment in a lot of these processes across the country. And it is strange to me, but yes. So I would like to amend if I was king for a day, I would also add that because that is a very good point, James. Well, the one phrase that I always like, I think it's from Fit to Fight Fire, John Spearer and, and his crew um, is, you know, yeah, would, would you want you rescuing you? And what I always say is, right. I like that, but I'm going to see that and raise you. We're in a selfless profession. So in all honesty, I'm really not too worried about me. But my thing is, how would you feel if your family died because the rescuer hadn't trained? That's the real sobering thought yeah. for me. If you were that person and you couldn't make it to that fifth floor or that 20th floor or that, you know, whatever it is, and that family burned up or that child choked or whatever it was that you were responding to, and the only reason that they perished is because you hadn't owned your fitness, your training, your protocol knowledge, whatever it was, that you know, you're going to take that to your grave. But we are in a profession where it's not that we screw up someone's taxes or we flood their bathroom or whatever. If we fuck up, people die. We die, yeah. our partner dies, or the people that we're responding to dies. And I don't understand why that's such a hard sell locally, nationally, that 
the SEALs, the Green Berets, the PJs, the Ocean Lifeguards all have a, a, you know, a standard that they're held to. And if you don't reach it anymore, you're not doing that job anymore. But the fire right. service and law enforcement is like, how dare you threaten our career? You know, now, now Fat Steve's not going to have a job because of your policy. Yes, Fat Steve has got two choices to either spend the next two years getting back to where he can do the job properly, because as I right. said, to be very fair, our environment does set us up for failure, or maybe fire prevention is the best place for Fat Steve now. And this sounds so callous, but lives fucking depend on us. And it is inexcusable for us physically not to be able to respond. And as you know as well, if you have that healthy body, now you're much more likely to have that clear, healthy mind as well. Right. Well, and that's the thing. Like you say, it sounds callous, but it doesn't sound callous. We are in the business of saving lives. Like, and we're not going to sit here and pretend like we're running into buildings every single day, but we are in a profession where you are to be ready at a moment's notice for somebody's worst day. And for me, I think it's, I cannot expect anybody to be to the level of accountability that I hold myself. For me, it's personal accountability. For me, I know that I will not be able to sleep at night knowing certain things. I know that for myself. And I think that's the hardest thing for me is when I look at other people, I know for a fact, you cannot do this job. I know it. And if I know it, you know it. And you mentioned Green Berets, SEALs, and ocean rescue. So these are all professions that save people's lives. And we want these men, women, whatever, we want them to be the best shape of their lives on the front line. James, we can't even take a lesson from the NFL. Let's just take the NFL for a second. They put first round draft picks. They put their first string players in every single game to give them the best possible outcome for the win. The fire service will put in their fifth string kicker for the game-winning field goal every single time. And we will just say, well, it was time to give him a chance. It was time to give her a chance. Well, then you lose the game. Well, in our sense, like you just said, we lose the game, people die. And I think that is the hardest thing for me is, and I've had to, I'll say, shelf some things or some personal feelings because I said, oh, it's not personal. It's personal. When I get on the truck and I look at the person next to me and I say, I know for a fact they cannot do their job and they do not have my back today. I'm really going to have to watch myself. But also on the other end of that, I don't want that other person on that truck to have to look at me one day and say, well, I know they don't have my back today and I know he can't do his job. Personal level of accountability for me is when I reach a point, whatever age it is, that I cannot do this job effectively anymore to serve my citizens and I'm not put my brothers and sisters in jeopardy, I'll leave. I will have to step out of this profession because I cannot stand here and look my men and women in the face if I know I can't do this. That's a personal thing for me. I think other people need to look in the mirror, if you will, and make that decision for themselves, especially if you have time to retire. It may just be time to retire. This is not a job where, hey, kudos. If you've done an entire career in the fire service and you are at the retirement years or age, great. Awesome. That is a big accomplishment. But if you're at that time and you can't do this job anymore and you know it and you're riding it out because you're putting your kids through college, you are putting yourself in jeopardy and you are putting the men around you in jeopardy and the women around you in jeopardy. So I don't understand why it's so taboo. I don't understand why it gets so quiet in the room. Nobody's asking you to be a fitness stud. I'm asking you to get up off your ass and walk on the treadmill for 30 minutes, then maybe put it on an incline the next time. 
then maybe pick up a kettlebell. I'm asking you to just show me some effort and do something. And I, you know, I've been, James, I've been there. I've been up to 265 in the fire department. And now I'm down to 207. And then I might get up to 210, 215. Like I've been all over the place, but I've never been in this job and not been able to do it. And I think that's what bothers me the most is I have a friend of mine who's a strength and conditioning coach. Uh, his wife runs a great gym in the area over here. And we have this conversation all the time about being tactical athletes. Whether you like it or not, we are. It's what we do. And the fact that people are running around and a 30-minute walk, it's not going to cut it. I love an incline walk on a day where I want to take a rest. I'll throw a 20-pound weight vest on and just walk uphill. But if you're not doing something to get your heart rate up, something to challenge yourself, to think that you're all of a sudden going to be ready when that fire hits, it's just not realistic. I mean, I could, I could talk about this all day. <laughs> well, it's something I'm passionate about as well because, I mean, I people look at me and go, oh, it's easy for you. You're skinny. And it's like, well, that's right. the other side of the conversation. I've had to work to be strong enough to be a firefighter because I'm not, you know, built like a, you know, a mesomorph. I'm not that fucking athletic, rich froning type that, you know, no matter what you throw at me, I'm going to be good at it. So a lot of the smaller guys, there's the more petite women have to work their ass off more on the strength yeah. side. But what blows me away, firstly, that we have so much resistance by the very chess beating union that declares they're one of the strongest in the country but yet we can't even figure out the fucking work week and fitness standards so i'm sorry right. but I, I i don't think we are i think we should I be agree. i love the union yeah. philosophy i paid my whole career but i'm fucking hugely disappointed with 14 years worth of jews personally yeah. but that's just me yeah well Sec that's why i'm not in the union personally uh, <laughs> well there we go but i mean I, yeah. I, I love that the idea of it you know being together yeah. being part of something bigger so that you're not yeah. oppressed but we are anyway you know so but with the standards it's not about oh we're going to enact them tomorrow and everyone who's not able to pass this test is fired no of course we are so behind the eight ball that you have an on-ramp of you know, like two years where okay this is the punitive point if if two years from now you're not where you need to be then that's when we're talking about, you know, change of, of job description. But up until then, you've got this time to get yourself back in shape. What yep. also happens is the conversation is you'll get some super amped up guy like, all right, we're going to make a fitness test. And it's going to be you've got to deadlift three times your body weight and do 16 muscle ups with one arm and all this shit. And then people are like, well, that's got no, it doesn't pertain to what we do at all. Right. The irony is you just do something similar to the combat challenge. You throw a ladder, you drag a hose you pull a dummy you know you crawl all the things that it doesn't matter if you're gay straight black white male female giraffe badger whatever if you can do those tasks with fire, fire ground implements no one can say oh that's not fair it's the right. very tool that you need so we're in a rare profession where we can make it extremely fair you either can or you can't so the fact that we haven't got a standardized version of some sort of Fire, fire, um, fire ground evolution. The fire sled guys, Rick uh, Seagrass, has a great kind of alternate to the CPAT they put together. But you know, or the, we have the IPAT in Orange County. But again, they make it non-punitive, an easier version of the CPAT, which is already really fucking easy. Um, and they don't even hold them to that standard. So this is the problem: right. is we have all the answers. It's there. It's in front of you. You know, climb X amount of stairs with this gear that you would do in a simple high-rise strip. No one can say it's not fair. So I don't understand why 
the unions fight it, the administrations fight it, because not only are you going to have a good responder, but I actually care about, as you said, the, the man in the jump seat, the man in, you know, driving or the woman. I want you to be able to function on a fire ground. And I also want you to be able to play paintball with your grandkids. So opposing fitness standards not only makes us worse at our job, but it rapidly increases the chance of us dying prematurely as well. So it's a win-win and I don't understand the resistance to it. Well, and you just said it. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a win-win. I mean, it's it's helping. It's not, look, my biggest thing, like if you expose a weakness of mine, it's exposed. So now it's up to me whether I choose to improve on that weakness or not. And I think that's the biggest thing that you just hit the nail on the head. This benefits everybody. It benefits everybody across the board. I'm not coming after you because maybe you don't have the best fitness level I'm coming to help you improve your fitness level if that's what you want to do so you can have a lengthy and healthy career and retire from here healthy. I think honestly, one of the main reasons that, you know, nationally, maybe we don't have a, a punitive or a standard, if you will, as far as fitness goes is because I think across the fire service, we know the truth and our administrations do know the truth. We do know that there are people that exist in our profession right now that cannot do this job and they will be exposed and they will not have a job. We already have staffing issues. We already have problems. I think we've perpetuated a problem over a long time. I think the only way to solve that problem, like you said, is to start somewhere. And the problem is so big, I think it's hard to imagine tackling it but it doesn't mean we don't tackle it. And what we're doing now is we're just not doing anything and it's not making it better for the future generation of firefighters that come in here because it's just lowering the standards when they see, well, these three people only function at this level. That's only the level that I need to function at. Or you get a very high performing individual that comes from another career that sees three people functioning at this level and decides, I thought this place was different and he leaves. And he looks for something else, but that's the guy or that's the girl that we want. We need that guy. We want that guy. And it's hard to keep people like that around when those are the type of people that we need. And it, it's not an attack, right? I think people would say like, oh, it's just, it's just this, everybody's got to, it's not an attack. It is, what do you need to do to get better at this job? Just put on your gear and crawl around the station. You know, when was the last time you put on your gear and crawled around and pulled the dummy? or dragged hose around the corner, or did a jog in gear, or put a vest on. I mean, I got a guy at my station right now, and he just joined a CrossFit gym, and I was just kind of poking at him. You know, I was trying to get him to do the jiu-jitsu gym with me, and he chose CrossFit over jiu-jitsu. So I was like, you know, you're just working out to get better at working out. Like, I'm working out to learn a fighting style. So, But his whole reason was, hey, listen, I'm doing this because I need to be able to go through two bottles and know that I can go through two bottles on the fire scene on my own, and I need to feel good about myself. That's huge for me. This is why he's doing this off duty. You know, he's taking care of this on his own time, and you know, he works right. It works out regularly at work, but he is doing this for himself because he has personal accountability. And for me, as you know, somebody that he works with, yeah, sure, he works for me, but nobody cares what color my helmet is when we're trapped inside of a building together. So the fact that I know that's why he's working out like that, sure, like I'm not a fitness stud. Maybe he's not a fitness stud. I don't need you to be a stud. He's working towards it. 
And I think if anybody out there listening to this is, you know, you get your panties in a twist, just start working, just go for a walk. You know, and my wife's told me I should write a book called go for a walk. Cause I tell everybody that's lazy, just go for a walk. Stop any excuses. If you walked around the block, it'd be something better than yesterday. If you walk around the block, had a glass of water and ate a piece of broccoli. Oh my gosh. You know, you'd be doing so much better than yesterday, but we refuse to start. Uh, I don't know what the answer is. Um, I know for me, like you said, as a supervisor, as somebody that's responsible for other people, somebody that uh, is personally accountable and knows that people count on me, I'm going to make an effort to improve and always do fitness to a level where I can do this job for a long time. And the minute I can't, it's it's time for me to go. You know, my career is over. And I do, I do believe everybody does have that day. Probably a hard realization that it's time to move on. I can't imagine. I'm not there yet. Um, I would like to say that when it's my time, I have people around me that I've given permission to to tell me, hey, it's time for you to go. And um, I'm I'm hoping I'll I'll listen at this point because I sure am talking a lot. So <laughs> well, one more perspective. I want to get to the kind of mental health journey, sure. but just before yeah. we do. I was uh, interviewing Dr. Laurie, um, who is the our current U.S. Fire Administrator, and you know it was interesting because even her like understanding of the difference in shifts. You know, I mean, that no one can give a, a good answer. Why are our first responders that are in charge of lives also working two full days more than the average person who's bagging groceries or doing taxes? Right. It's it's insane. Yeah. But um, she was talking a lot about the the shortage, the firefighter shortage, as far as recruitment. Now, I've got, I'll kind of talk about what I think is going on in a minute, but I don't want to load the question. Are you seeing a shortage of candidates in your area? And if so, what do you think are some of the contributing factors at the moment? Yeah, we're 100% seeing a shortage. I think we're very reflective of the rest of the country. Uh, there's a shortage. Um, <clears throat> we're told that staffing is not a huge issue. Our numbers are good, but we're still working mandatory overtime. And there's, we're just not seeing the amount of candidates uh, that are applying for the job that used to apply. I mean, we used to have thousands of people standing in line to do this job. And I think we probably have a hundred candidates right now lined up that are in the process. Now, when you're talking about the rest of the process, background checks, you know, psyche valves, getting in the academy, doing the academy, we will probably out of a hundred people, maybe get 19 and that's that's starting from the top, you know, um, applied for the job and then maybe graduate 19. So I honestly don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the answer is as far as why people are not applying. Why do they not want to do this job anymore? Um, to me, it was about service. And like I said, I've, I've chosen the Army and the fire department to do that. If I wasn't in the fire department, I would have probably been a cop. Uh, you know, it, it would have been some form of service in, in a uniform for some reason, this was appealing to me. I don't know, James. I don't know what the answer is. I would love to say like, oh, it's the generation. You know, they just want easy and they don't want to do anything. I think this is a very hard job when it comes to what we actually do. I don't think everybody understands what we do when we actually have to do it. Yes, there's the, uh, I was told the other day, hey, you stop heroizing. Stop making this job all about heroism, you know, and I don't feel like I did that. I mentioned three events that happen pretty regularly in my fire department, which are fires, gunshots, and stabbings. I feel like those happen on a regular basis. 
in, in towns. Um, and I was told I was making the job to be heroic. And I said, if you don't want to do those three things, that's not a good idea to be in the fire department. And I don't think people understand what we do. Um, was that I don't know, the, James, I don't have an answer. Was that after the back hotel post that I saw? So, yeah, I think I posted something <laughs> and, uh, you know, somebody wasn't happy and, you know, it is what it is. But look, if you don't want to run into burning buildings, I don't think you should be in the fire department. Oh, absolutely. I, I feel like that's, I feel like that's pretty, I ask people all the time. They're like, Hey, I thought about joining the fire department. And my first question is, do you want to run into burning buildings? And I'm not saying I do that every day. I do that. I have done it, done it multiple times done it quite a bit over the course of my career just because I've been in a little while and I'm sure I will do it again before I retire. So I want to do that. So I chose to do this. People, the first thing they say is, no, I don't want to running burning buildings. And I'm like, well, you probably should not apply. It's in the title. It's not fire yeah. fleer. It's fire fire. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy to me, but I don't know what the answer is as far as why people are not applying. Uh, I don't know. I really have no idea. So here's a couple of my, you know, hypotheses. Firstly, I think that sadly, physically, we appear to be a, a continuously sicker population in general. And it breaks my heart that you see these obese children, you see even these skinny children with zero muscle tone and the, the kind of kyphosis of an 80-year-old. So I think that our pool in general of potential candidates are, is smaller, even though our fit teens, our fit youth now are incredibly fit with the world, you know, CrossFit right. and Spartan races and all these things that you can do now to, to become an elite athlete. Um, but I think the other problem is, and it's not a problem, it's actually a good thing. You can't hide from all the negativity of serving as a first responder in 2023 you can't hide from the fact that we have this insane fucked up work week that doesn't make any sense whatsoever you can't hide from the fact that so many departments have mandatory overtime so a parent who's trying to get home to their child's birthday party is told actually you got to stay for another 24 making it a you know 80 plus hour work week now you can't hide from the fact that we have firefighter suicides that the first responders lifespan is usually you know on average, five years after they retire. Now, is it doom and gloom? Does it take away from the incredible profession that we both adore? No, but it is also a reality. And I really think that some of these younger generations are doing the research because they have the entire world at their fingertips now. And they're like, all right, what does the fire service actually look like? And when you lay it out on paper, as much as we love what we do, there's all the fucking 911 abuse. There's the sleep deprivation. There's the organizational betrayal where departments throw their responders under the bus. There's, um, as you said, officers rising through the ranks that have no fucking business being there. So this is just, you know, the, the other side. Doesn't mean it's the part that we love. What we love is the tribe, you know, of being part of a cohesive firehouse and working out together and eating together and, you know, some incredible rescues and loading hose after an incredible house fire. Those are epic moments. But there's also that other side, and it exists yeah. parallel to it. And I think this is the problem, is that we've got a diminished pool in the first place. And then we have done such a horrible job, not only of branding what we do, so there's still a misunderstanding of what firefighters do, but this, we finally thrown back the curtains on the mental and physical ill health created by this job. And I think some kids look at this and go, 
I wanted to be a firefighter until I actually researched what it was really like. And now I don't because that looks like it's, you know, it's going to break me down. And 10 years later, the likelihood of me being divorced or an alcoholic or whatever is going to go up incredibly versus this other job I've been looking at, which I was holding, you know, side by side. That looks a lot more attractive now. And so to me, this is an amazing opportunity for us to fix all the broken parts because now we're forced to. Our, our staffing is becoming a crisis now. So this might be the final opportunity for us to take a step back and go, all right, civilians work a 40-hour week. They're not awake all night. They don't have to go from zero to 100 and all of a sudden be holding a chainsaw three stories up five minutes after waking up or make an entry to a fire or extricating a child from a smashed up car. Maybe we should actually start giving these men and women the rest and recovery during their work week that we need. Maybe we should actually be staffing our departments properly so that we're not forcing them to stay 24 hours over and over and over again. So that's my thing. I think this is actually completely symptomatic of something that we've known for the longest time. But people like you and people like me at 7 a.m. when that phone rang, we stayed. And so as long as we stayed and we covered those shifts because we didn't want someone to die because we weren't there anymore that was constantly taken advantage of. And I think that we're at this paradigm shift now where it's one of two things. We fix it or we close fire stations all over the country and people die. Yeah, no, and that's, James, that's a very good point. I mean, because at this point, I think you're right. We are at a place where it either the problem's going to get solved or we recognize it and we ignore it and it's just going to get worse. There's nothing that's just going to get better, you know, if you will. You know, I... I did the army and I did the fire department and I came back a completely different person from the army. And my oldest daughter will tell you I've been two, three different people over the course of, you know, she's, she'll be 22 this summer and she's, she's seen, you know, her dad change, you know, one or two times for the good, one or two times for the bad. She's seen these changes in me, you know, and because of the army and it wasn't not blaming the army. There were things that, you know, I wish I wish it was more prevalent, the PTSD and the help and the stuff back then. Um, you know, they're doing whatever they can now, which is great. But she's seen these changes, you know, uh, that took place because of jobs that I've chosen. And for her, looking for a spouse, looking for a guy, she does not want to date anybody that is a military person or in the fire department. Because she's seen, to your credit, what you were just saying, exactly some of the stuff that you talked about. And she doesn't want to have to experience that on the side of being a spouse of somebody in one of these professions. Um, you know, I I would like to say that I'm in a position now where I could help, you know, the younger generation. And we were honest about what we did uh, moving forward. You know, you can there are guys in here that are really good at keeping their family together and balance and kids. And it's there are people that have done it well. And I don't think we probably highlight that enough. In the course of the fire service, I think it's just normal to join the fire service, get divorced, have three wives and, you know, different kids and you'll make it, you know, and that's okay if that's you. There's nothing wrong with that, but that doesn't have to be you. If you want to be part of the 30% of America of the fire department that keeps their marriage together and has a healthy family, you can, you can do that. It's a very low statistic, but you can be part of that. And I think working towards being part of that is what actually keeps you part of that. So, yeah, that's a very good point. I think there's a lot of information out there. First responders are all over the news. A lot of stuff is uh, it's pretty much forefront. There's a lot of videos out there. 
you know, nobody, you know, to that I know of wants to be a police officer right now with everything that's in the news. And I think it's trickled down into the fire department as far as just nobody wants to do these jobs of service. And there is a lot of information. You are correct. Like, why would I want to do that and not, and, you know, not be mentally healthy in 10 years? And I think if we, we are at a point where we really could just address it all and start, start fixing some of these problems. You know, I, I taught an academy back in 2015, 2016, and the first day I showed a pretty intense video of some guys that got trapped in a fire about three hours from here in Loudoun County, Virginia, and the audio is pretty intense. Uh, the fire is pretty intense, and these guys are eating carpet at this point, screaming on the radio, and it's good to heard a pin drop. It's the, it's the second day of the academy. I'm sorry, the first day of the academy. I wanted these guys and girls to understand this could be you. You could be in this situation. And the next day, I had people come in the office and turn in their things. I I didn't know we did that. I didn't know we could be in that situation. you know. And um, I think I have more respect for people that say, hey, I, I just don't want to do this. you know. Um, but at the same point, this is it's a good job. You know, it's a good job. I love this job. I've been doing it 18 years. My plan is to do seven more at a minimum. And I am eligible for retirement at that point. I don't know that I'll leave at that point. It's a good job. I've enjoyed serving. Yeah, there's a lot of bullshit I've had to put up with. You know, like you said, 911 abuse, sleep deprivation, marriage problems, drinking, you know, all kinds of stuff. But there's help out there as well. And I think, you know, now more than ever, uh, a lot of the mental health stuff is being exposed in the fire department community. There's help out there if you want it. You know, there's a lot of resources, but this is a very good job. And I think we're not making it marketable and we're not doing a good job marketing. Hey, health, wellness, fitness, longevity. You know, I, I just, I don't want to retire and, oh man, across the finish line, I'll be 46 when I reach full retirement age. I, I have my whole life ahead of me. You know, I, I, I want to do, I could do another career after that, but I have to be healthy mentally and physically to do that. So I think making this job more marketable, I watched one of your recent videos just on, um, you know, our work schedule and the working 10 days a month. I have since stopped telling people that I only work 10 days a month because I realized that um, it's not true. And I'm telling people when they think about it, honestly, that woke me up a little bit. When I say uh, I only work 10 days a month. Well, their brain to them, they work 10 days a month. That would be a Monday through Friday, eight to five. That's kind of what their brain goes to because that's what they've seen. So to them, I don't do anything. I work 10 days a month, you know, well, those 10 days a month are 24 hour shifts. And if you talk to my wife, uh, some of those days of recovery and I'm right back to work the next day and it's not recovery. There was no recovering. It was, there was things I had to get done in the house or I'm, I'm a husband, you know, when I'm not at work, I'm a, I'm a father and I want to be available while I'm here. And before I know it, it's 9 PM and I'm back to work the next day, you know? So, uh, I've definitely stopped telling people that I only work 10 days a month. I used your poker chip analogy at work. And my buddy said, I wish you wouldn't have told me that super depressing to find out that I actually <laughs> actually work every single day. I said, yeah, but it puts it into perspective. We've got to stop telling people these these uh these mantras like, hey, yeah, whatever, you know, 
that's what we do. Well, yeah, but it doesn't have to be this way, as as my buddy Joe at work would say. It doesn't have to be this way, Lieutenant. And uh, it really doesn't, James. It doesn't have to be this way. And um, I think, honestly, it's guys like you that are bringing the light to a lot of these things and people that are passionate about their different areas in the fire service. I don't believe it will always be this way. I think it's going to take a group of pioneers to lead in their perspective areas. And I truly do believe, I don't care if it takes 10, 15, 20 years, that it's going to change. It's just going to take time. And we have to celebrate the little victories as they come along. But yeah. Beautiful. Well, firstly, I'm glad that that video made it to you because that, that was an aha moment for me with Kirk Parsley. And you kind of look at the sleep deprivation stuff and then you look, take a step back. Because I mean, I was the same as everyone else. One day on, two days off, you know, 10 days a month. And then you realize, well, a 24-hour shift is three work days crammed together. That totally changes the way. It's three days on, one day off, or 30 days a month. Very, very different conversation. But with this, you know, some people are like, oh, you know, we've got to start talking about the doom and gloom. I would always refer people to that um, clip from Newsround. I think it was uh, Jeff Daniels. And he's in this uh, university and he's playing, I forget what he is, a politician or um, maybe he's a journalist. I don't even know what the character is. But they say, one of the students says, why is America the greatest country in the world? And a couple of the others give the canned answers. And then he goes, we're not. And everyone gasps, you know, and then it's like, we used to be. And again, I, I don't think that countries are in some sort of competition to be the quote unquote best. But his point was beautiful. But no, we're this in education, we're this in, in you know, obesity, we're this, we're this. It's the same with the fire service. Questioning the way we do it does not mean that you don't adore the fire service. If you adore the Absolutely. fire service, you fucking fight to make it better. And that's right. what I feel that we're doing is you have to hold that mirror up. The fitness standards, the the work week, the mental health. I mean, I I've, one of the things that I've been talking to a lot of people, f- get rid of the polygraph, get rid of the psych test. They're both absolute bullshit. And instead, through that probationary year, give someone six counseling sessions. Hire a counselor right. that's culturally oh competent. Oh my gosh. And now yeah. you just come in from whether it's your childhood, whether it's, you know, you're you're a veteran, whatever it is, you have an opportunity to not only offload things at the front door before you put the uniform on, but you've normalized mental health and you know exactly who you're going to go to the moment that you feel like you need to talk to someone. And then yeah. you wouldn't have to find an extra penny in the budget. And then with the work week, the money that we absolutely waste, you know, I mean, that as far as the inefficiency of destroying your responders and then paying, you know, workman's comp claims and overtime and medical retirement and line of duty death and lawsuits because we've screwed up. You would save money hand over fist as a department by simply hiring a fourth shift, bringing that work week down to 42. And now you actually have a 72 hour period from that sleepless night of getting your ass handed to you to going home, first first day is ruined, second day you start actually catching up, third day now you're thinking about going on shift, now you're pretty close to, to reset again. So the answers are there, the money is there, it's just the courageous leadership that you will not look good in that budget year, but 10 years from now your department will thank you for what you did for them. Yeah, no, 100%. And like, so I think it's DC is the closest area to us that does the um, 24 on 72 off with the four shifts. And it works as far as rest and recovery. When you look at everything, I mean, the way my shift works, you know, we kind of talked about it earlier was if I work 24 hours on a Tuesday, Wednesday's a recovery day. 
I'm back thirty Thursday for twenty four hours. Friday's a recovery day. I, I'm not recovered, you know, especially if I'm up all night and I have family stuff when I get home. So I'm off Friday. Saturday, I'll work 24 hours again. Sunday's a quote-unquote recovery day, but it's not really a recovery day. It's not a day off. It's not a recovery day. I know that I'm getting off that morning, and I'm preparing to go back to work the next day. Monday, I work again 24 hours, and I'm not over here complaining. I've done this for you know the past 18 years. If I wanted to do something else, it's 110% my choice. I could pack up, go do something else, and I could go do that. I enjoy what I do. I love what I do. You know, no department's perfect, but we can be doing it better. And, you know, even a three-day break, I'm I'm off on a Tuesday. Wednesday's like halfway recovery. Thursday, I'm ready to go back to work Friday, and I'm working Friday, Sunday, 24 hours that weekend. You know, so we live our life, you know, with my department, we live our life three weeks at a time because that's our schedule. So our year flies by so fast. We were talking about this the other day at work because we live three weeks at a time. It's five-day break to five-day break. That's how we live. You know, five-day breaks are our weekends. And and every Tuesday, you know, thank, thank God I love my job. I love the crew that I work for. I feel extremely spoiled. I, um, I, I don't take the problems that the National Fire Department has or even the City Fire Department on my level has. And, you know, I'm not going to fix everything. There's always going to be problems. You know, I just... I just try and make sure it's a good day at Station 7 in Norfolk. You know, that's that's all I can control, you know, but I can't imagine not loving this job and having to come to work and to deal with some of these things. And and you said it best. I complain to change. I don't complain just to complain. There are things that I am passionate about, things that I talk about that I'm willing to bring a solution to the problem. I don't I don't write to be famous. I am not a New York Times bestseller. I don't know that I ever will be. I I write because I can hopefully help other people. You know, I'm offering solutions to problems. If I'm bringing up a problem and somebody comes to me and says, hey, you've been complaining about this for a little while. Is there anything you can do about it? I need to be challenged. Maybe there is something I can bring to the table. So, but the fact that we have all this data and we're not doing anything about the sleep deprivation, I mean, depending on where you work in my city, you could get a decent night's sleep. And there are other stations where you will not sleep at all. And, um, you know, it's the the solution is, oh, we'll send this guy here or send this guy there. That doesn't fix the bigger problem. It doesn't fix everything. You're fixing two or three people's problems. And then, you know, you get the burnout, you know, where the guys are just over it. And now the level of care goes down. The level of performance goes down, you know. We we would save a lot more money, I think you said up front, if we just spent the money, took care of the problems. Um, yeah, I mean, I I love what I do, and I, I joke all the time at work with a buddy of mine. I said, man, if we we choose to complain to each other a lot because we're we really want to make things better, but I'm like, man, we'd sound like two grumpy old men if we talked to anybody else. But it's it's really complaining to change. You know, I complain and I vent, but I wouldn't be here if I don't want to be. And usually the things if if I'm, you know, going on a tangent about fitness, I'm probably doing about something about my own level of fitness. You know, a lot of the things I post and a lot of the articles that I write, even the books that I share, I try and be an authentic. And if I'm probably challenged in a moment and then I share it with other people, you know, if anybody thinks I'm preaching or posting from a place of perfection, you got to go find somebody else. I am not your guy. But, you know, um, yeah, 2472, bring it. 
I'll take it all day. That's my dream schedule. And that's what it should be, an environment that allows us to thrive, that keeps us you know, away from the obesity and the mental health and some of these things that plague our, our community. Yeah. Well, speaking of mental health, you you know you have a pretty traumatic and powerful story when it comes to you know as you touched on your first marriage and then and then leading into right. the second one so you you come back from combat you enter the fire service walk me through kind of your own mental health journey and the impact on your marriage initially yeah so join the fire department get in the military come back from the military completely changed uh, not really sure what to think at this point I've detached myself to where I am a United States uh, Army soldier. This is my life. This is what I do. I returned with that mentality. Uh, very much a husband, a father. My son was born while I was gone. I had a four-year-old daughter uh, while I was deployed. Uh, my wife at the time, Ashley, she was my high school sweetheart. We were just, I was just excited to be home. She was excited to have me home. She was in nursing school, was finishing up her her fourth year at ODU in nursing. Actually, I'm sorry, her yeah, her fourth year at ODU in nursing. And I was getting ready to finish up the fire department academy. And we're kind of getting our careers started, you know, and uh young and upcoming family. We had a child young and we refused to be that statistic of, you know, hey, we'd had a baby in high school, we're not gonna make it. Well, you know, now we'd gotten married had a young family, we were getting our careers going. We were we were pretty proud of ourselves as far as what we'd come through and what we'd done. When I got back, I really didn't realize that while I was deployed, I really detached myself from anything back home in an effort to make myself the best soldier possible. I, I can't say that everybody else did or didn't do this. Um, I can't say that there's one uh, one event that specifically changed me. I think for me, when I got over there, I realized that I could not come home. My best possible way to go home was be the best soldier I could be, perform the best, and um, just be part of the best guys and girls that were over there so I could get home safely. So I, I did that. I I detached myself after being over there for a few months into, I am a United States Army soldier. This is how I will live. I may not come home. My best case at coming home is to perform at a high level. I did that. I went home about six months into my deployment for two weeks. It was great. And I went back after two weeks, which is not enough time to see your family. It was a terrible back half of my deployment for the last six months. And getting back, I can remember um, we went through physicals and all that stuff. I maybe sat with a counselor. I don't remember. All I could think was, I just want to see my wife and my, my, my daughter and my nine month old son. I can remember being in formation at the national guard place. We're all in formation. And he said, fall out for the final time in formation. And I just remember a huge burden being lifted. My deployment was over. There was my wife, tears. I still will cry at military homecoming videos. Anybody that doesn't, I would challenge whether you have a heart. Um, but that was it. That was it for me. I'd made it home. And at that point, I guess I didn't understand that the all the time I spent detaching myself, I would have to spend putting myself back together. I didn't know how to do that. So I just continued to function. I jumped in the fire department. And the fire department academy was pretty busy. So it was pretty much my wife had just finished school. She was looking at getting a job. but hadn't gotten a job yet. And um, it was just me and the academy Monday through Friday. 
uh, 6 a.m. to whenever we got off. They called it 8 to 5. It was not 8 to 5. Um, very young family. She was pressing my uniforms, making dinner on our one-pot stove burner because we didn't have a stove when we first got married. And um, But I was living the dream. I you know, jumped in the fire department, living the life, still not even realizing I was so busy these detachment issues weren't really taking place, you know, um, in me returning from my deployment, her dad passed away within two, two months of me being back, which was very close to her dad. Uh, he kind of took care of my family while I was gone that hit the family really hard. Um, so another traumatic event right on me back from returning from my deployment. Um, I then, we then moved in with her family. I was now the go-to guy for, my wife, her mom, her sister, my daughter, and my uh, nine-month-old son. A lot of pressure, and I didn't even realize at the time how much pressure. Um, you know, And at that point, we just weren't connecting. I was trying, but we couldn't figure it out. I was excited to be home, but led to a lot of problems. Um, ended up at parties, hanging out with, with single guys. They were doing single guy things. Anything wrong. You know, I was doing single guy things while I was married. Um, I, it was easy to connect with people that I didn't know. And that would be it because there's no real connection. It was for a night. And um, I messed up one time really early back from my deployment. I just kissed a girl and I kind of I kind of went downhill from there. Um, I ate that and decided I don't need to tell anybody. I wanted to tell my wife, but I would never do it again. And the detachment issues, they just got worse as I poured myself into the early years of my fire department career. Um, I made everything about the fire department because it felt like my deployment. Everything was familiar. I was busy. The streets in Norfolk were extremely busy. There was always something to learn, always something to do. There was always a class to take. Um, the guys I was with were super involved. You know, if they were, we had good married guys at the station, but some of the guys were single. And like I said, I did single guy stuff and that was when my wife was challenging. Hey, what do you love the fire department more than you love me? Um, within the first year, we found out we were pregnant again. This is about a year after me being back from my deployment. And, um, you know, here I am. We're having another baby. We're not connecting at all at this point. She's dealing with losing her dad. She was very close to her whole family's grieving we're grieving. I'm in the fire department. There's so much happening at this point. And I am out here. I've just poured myself in the fire department because it was easy. I've, I've learned to function in chaos where I've become comfortable and chaos was just easy. And that's what I chose. So continually over the years, constantly um, just drifting away, um, ended up getting mixed up with an old high school girl that I'd known that was back in the area uh, slowly over time slid in into a, an affair, which I never, uh, I, if you had asked me this when I was married, I married my high school sweetheart who I was very much in love with. Uh, this was very out of character for me. Uh, this was not pre-deployment me, I would say. It just wasn't Josh. Um, so, you know, slowly got involved with another woman, ended up in an affair and um, guilt, shame kind of took over. And I don't want to be a, uh, a single fireman on my own with three kids kind of called it off out of fear. I was like, Hey, I can't do this anymore. Carried that didn't share anything. So I'm just packing all of this stuff in a bag and uh, like took that with me. Didn't share anything. Nobody will ever find out. And so just kind of kept on moving forward. Tiger never changes his stripes, kept on making bad decisions, partying with the guys, 
a couple of one night stands in there. My wife knows nothing about it at this point. I'm living a double life, which is extremely stressful for anybody that's ever lived a double life or that is living a double life. Um, I'm living a double life. I'm trying to be the best dad I can be, the best, fi best fireman I can be, not, not thinking I'm a great husband. So now I'm dealing with this guilt and shame of all these other things. Didn't really have anybody to share with. Uh, God was always kind of in the background because I had that faith background. I always felt like I had something to go back to, but even that was tricky for me because with my upbringing, I felt like, well, there, God can't love me for everything that I've done. I'll just live like this. One day I'll turn 18. One day the kids will turn 18. We'll get divorced. And that was my plan. I had decided that I would just live this way. And, um, you know, I, I didn't tell, I'd asked for a divorce at one point, you know, and she asked me why, and you gave her the old, like, you know, I just, maybe we're not love anymore. And she called me a coward. And that was the first time anybody ever called me a coward. And she was 110% right. And that stung. Um, I didn't tell her at the time that it stung, but it stung pretty bad and, uh, ended up getting mixed up with somebody else. Um, a fair number two and still, did not say anything to her. Well, that one I got caught. I was out at a party and somebody saw us together. I got caught. I was supposed to be on a Kelly night, uh, supposed to be working overtime and probably a common story in the fire department. And I hung out with another girl instead of being on Kelly and my buddy that was supposed to cover for me kind of let it slip out that I wasn't at work the night prior. Got caught hanging out with this other girl. This was 2012. And uh, my wife got a hold of me and she said, either you come home tonight or don't come home at all. I don't understand what's going on. She knew nothing about this double life that I was living and the guilt and the shame of just feeling detached and living on my own and running around with other women for who knows why. Because this was a woman that I grew up with. I've known her since 1996. I was 14 years old. I married her for a reason very much in love. And now she's all of a sudden confronted with this man who she didn't know who I was. I didn't know who I was. She gave me that ultimatum. I left for about six months at that point. I, I chose to leave in 2012 in March. I shacked up with the woman I got caught with, uh, who was also in the fire department, uh, hurt people do find hurt people. And we did that. we got together and that was the summer from hell for me. Um, I resolved that I would get a divorce. I would run from my problems and really I was running from myself, taking myself with me. I was a terrible dad that summer. I was obviously a terrible husband. I don't recommend if you're married, moving in with your girlfriend. Uh, it's not a good idea. So I was not who I wanted to be and um, never who I set out to be never who I wanted to be. And I just started to slowly go downhill. We had problems with that relationship as well. You know, so it, of, of course, you know, when you're running from yourself and yourself is your problems, they don't go away. I can remember at that point during that summer, my wife got a boyfriend and I was extremely upset. How could she get a boyfriend while I'm living with my girlfriend? and uh terrible right and uh she called me one day we'd been separated for about five six months it was august at this point school was getting ready to start and she said she mentioned her boyfriend taking my son to some baseball practices and games and that 
uh, I think that, man, it just, it hit me hard that another man could possibly be spending time with my kids. And I got off the phone that day, August, 2012. And I thought, ah, I, I really want to go home. I just don't know how to do this. And, uh, so yeah, I, um, I sat down, got off the phone and I remember hearing, I've never heard God speak audibly. Maybe some people have, but I really felt like he challenged me in that moment to just fight for my family. And I realized I'd never actually fought for my marriage. I'd never been honest. I'd never been authentic. I've never been transparent. I'd never sat down with my wife and said, Hey, I am struggling. I'm living this double life. Let me, let's see if we can work this out. Let's see if we can make it work. And I had no idea how I was going to do that. I did know it would require me to break up uh, with my current girlfriend, leave that situation. So I believe in that moment that God challenged me to go home. Uh, like I said, I have the faith background. I didn't know what trusting God would look like, especially with had all these done all these things, you know. So broke up with my girlfriend. I went home and I told my wife I wanted to get back together in September 2012. She told me no. And I was kind of upset because I was back. I'd been gone for six months and she wanted me to come back. And she had a boyfriend. I had a girlfriend and we were sitting at the kitchen table in our house and both our phones rang. Her boyfriend was calling her and my girlfriend was calling me. And I looked at her and I said, we, sh we shouldn't be here. You know, this is never what we wanted. We shouldn't be here. And, uh, you know, she kind of chuckled. And um, I knew at that point in order to receive any credibility, I would have to just come clean and tell her everything. And uh, it took me a few days to honestly work up the courage to do that because I honestly got physically sick when I figured out I would have to share everything and come clean. Um, so I did. I requested a sit down. I shared about the one night stands. I shared about maybe just being detached, me wanting to work through things. I shared about the affairs. I pretty much out everything that um, everything I'd ever done, I told her in an effort to gain my family back, knowing that she could choose not to take me back. I just decided that she deserved it and I needed to get it off my chest and that these kids deserved the best dad they could have, even if I wasn't going to get the chance to be a husband again. Um, you know, so slept on my mom's couch for about two months. I was completely homeless at that point. My mom took me back to sleep on her ple pleather couch, which is not very comfortable, but, uh, my wife took me back that November. We had a lot to work through, a lot of stuff to sort out. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was, we were sitting in church and the preacher said something, you know, that just really resonated with the both of us. And I went home that night, helped her tuck the kids in and was getting ready to go back to my mom's place. And she asked me to stay. And that was probably about, we'd been separated about seven months. She asked me to stay in tears. She said, you can never leave again. And I mean, tears streaming down my face. This is my high school sweetheart. And I said, you know, it'll it'll never happen again. And uh, we had a lot of work through. I mean, I put the family through a lot of pain. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't completely put together at that time that a lot of it was the detachment stuff from the the military. I had been in a really busy fire company downtown Norfolk, um, seen a lot, done a lot, sleep deprivation, you know, everything. We had another child in there. And, uh, you know, I'm not sleeping at work, not sleeping at home, you know, um, a lot. I mean, any alcohol when I wasn't drinking, I wasn't drinking when I was drinking, I was drinking a lot. So we had a lot to work through when she took me back. It was not a, a Hallmark movie immediately. It was a lot of counseling and, um, you know, talking to the kids. My kids were real young. They were, um, I think, geez, they were 11 
four and three at the point. Very, very young. All my kids were young. So, but dad's back home. Everything was, uh, we worked everything out. You know, we really did. We worked through everything. We worked everything out. That was like 2012, 2013. We, um, we'd been married seven years at that point. And I think coming clean allowed her to come clean. And we really, we really started fresh. And we decided that this is what marriage was supposed to be like. Two people coming clean, helping each other heal, move forward that are very much in love. Now let's do family. Let's do life. And man, James, we were on top of the world. We were back to being best friends, back to being the people that, you know, uh, met in high school. But now we were married. You know, uh, it was the first year our kids all went to school all day. You know, we were horseback riding during the day on the beach, you know, just finding stuff to do. We were dating again. I mean, the best years of my life um, that we'd experienced in our relationship. You know, we didn't have a bad seven years of marriage, but living a double life for as long as I did, even the good moments, I still had stuff that I, you know, was guilt and shame that I was carrying to unpack and um, got back in a faith community that really helped me out, got reconnected with God on a personal level that really helped me out versus a religious level. I had some really good friends in the fire department that were really supportive of us getting back together. Her family was supportive. My family was supportive. It was probably the best, um, best experience as far as I can say, as far as my marriage went. And I figured at that point, I would never have to go through anything, you know, in my marriage, because this is the worst thing we'd ever have to tackle. And uh, we were living on cloud nine, you know, so fast forward 2015 um we didn't have a perfect marriage but we were having fun you know um everything was out in the open and you know we'd argue about normal stuff bills and you know the norm or i'd leave stuff around the house and she'd get irritated or she'd be on her phone too long and i'd get irritated or just the normal stuff but man life life was good i have no complaints um from 2012 when we got back together up until 2015 I uh, I went to station one. I did a 24-hour shift, came home. My wife had graduated nursing, so she was a NICU nurse at the time. And she went to work that morning. I didn't see her that morning because we were trading on and off of grandparents at that point. So kids are in school. I'm cleaning the garage. We're planning family vacation through text message. And the text messages stop. And I figure she's busy. She's a NICU nurse. And about an hour later, I get a phone call from her work and they tell me, Hey, you need to get down here right now. She works at, uh, she worked at Portsmouth Naval at the Naval hospital in the NICU unit. And, um, I asked some questions cause I have an EMS background, but for some reason I asked them, is she innovated? And I don't even know why, I don't know why that came out of my mouth, but they said yes. And anybody that's done anything in the EMS world knows that if somebody's breathing for you, it's just not a good day. So, head down to the hospital. I get there. They try and put me in a little room and I've put people in that little room before. And it's usually for bad news. And Mr. Chase, you need to sit down. I'm not sitting down. Just tell me where my wife is. You need to calm down. I'm as calm as I'm going to get. I'm as calm as I'm talking to you right now. Like, please just take me to my wife. Um, so they do. They take me to my wife with the chaplain. I'm now in the emergency department at Portsmouth Naval hospital. My best friend, is lying on a hospital table and they're doing CPR. Um, and it is a very familiar scene as far as EMS, but to see my wife on the table who was 32, healthy, not sick, high school sweetheart, 
been through the marriage stuff, been through the hardest thing we were going to work through on a hospital table and they're doing CPR. I, I didn't know what to think, where to look, what to do. And I look at the doctor and I just said, Hey, how, how long have you guys been doing this? And he said about 40 minutes. And, um, I knew from everything I've, I've never done CPR for 40 minutes, James, and anybody that's come back from CPR after 40 minutes is just not the same. And, uh, he said, uh, Mr. Chase, we're going to try one more time. And I just said, okay, I stood there. Um, and I watched my wife die on a hospital table at 32 years old with no explanation. The doctor looked at me, said, I'm sorry. I said, go ahead and call it. Uh, he gave me a time of death. And honestly, from that moment on, everything sounded different. Everything looked different. Uh, the chaplain went to give me a hug. I let him hug me. I was in complete shock. I looked at him and I said, how come I don't feel anything right now? And he said, son, you're going to be feeling a lot in the coming days. And um, I went outside the hospital and I distinctly remember they're doing construction. And all I can remember is just drill, just hitting the ground over and over and over. My life had changed. I then realized I had three kids at home that did not know their mom was going to pass away that day. She was not sick. It wasn't something they were preparing for. I had called Ashley's family to let them know that she was in the hospital. So I was not paying attention to the timeline. As I was standing outside staring at the water, they were pulling up in their cars. And as they saw me, they started to understand that she's not here anymore. Uh, I watched her sister fall apart in the parking lot. I watched her mom fall apart in the hospital. Um, you know, I went back in at one point and kissed my wife goodbye for the last time and realized I had to go home and tell the three kids that I had getting off of a school bus that they no longer had a mom. Um, that's probably to date one of the most challenging things I've ever done is to look my three young kids in the face and tell them their mom's not coming home. Um, I chose to let them be in school the whole day. I didn't want to pull them out. And uh, so one by one, they got off the bus. And one by one, I told each of them. And um, so young, I mean, six and five years old. And my daughter was 12 at the time, my oldest. So she, she, my oldest understood as much as she could understand. My two youngest were six and five. And they asked to go out and play after I gave them the news. They They couldn't understand really, you know, they're, they're 16 and 15 now, and now they're really starting to process and go through some feelings and emotions that they couldn't do when they were five and six. So um, that week, I planned my wife's funeral. I planned my best friend's funeral, and um, which I'm still a little bit upset about. I don't know why somebody else didn't step in and do that, but uh, I planned her funeral. I picked everything out. I picked the songs. Um in my 30, I just couldn't understand how my 32 year old wife passed away with no warning. So obviously I, I wanted an autopsy and, you know, coroner's report because I wanted some answers, but also moving forward, I wanted my kids to have answers as far as health. And, um, they said she had a random seizure that sent her into cardiac arrest and she didn't wake up. There was no real explanation as to why the seizure came on, how it came on. Um, I was explained to me that she froze in the hospital at her desk 
and she passed out and that was it. And um, so I really got really no, there was really no closure for me as far as what actually happened. No disease, nothing that I could blame this on. Um, it was a seizure and then she passed away. Um, planned her funeral. Uh, probably looked pretty strong at the funeral. I spoke at the funeral. My daughter spoke at the funeral and my whole life changed. There's a lot of falling apart after that. Um, I'm a husband working through grief. I have three kids I'm trying to, you know, raise on my own. Now I'm an only parent. I'm not just a single dad. I've learned that single dads and only parents are very different. You know, single dads get to send maybe the kids to the, you know, wife on the ex-wife on the weekend. And the kids were mine 24 seven and raising them through grief and helping them through their grief and me not knowing how to grieve, never have grieved before like this. She wasn't supposed to leave. We were supposed to grow old together and drink bourbon on a, on a porch and hang out and watch our grandkids play. And I had this vision when we were split up of, you know, us together with our grandkids playing. And that kept me driven towards, you know, reconciling my family. And now that wasn't a possibility anymore. And so I was still in the fire department at the time. Uh, anybody that's saying the brotherhood's dead, you just don't have good people around you. The brotherhood is not dead. Um, you know, sisters included, I had a very strong brotherhood. The guys that were at two with me, other people really showed up. The fire department really stepped up, helped me out. Uh, everybody in my faith community, they stepped up and helped me out. The, the biggest thing, you know, is just community. You got to have community and, uh, considered leaving the fire service at that time. I thought it was selfish to continue to put my life on the line considering my kids just lost their mother and i did not know what i was going to do moving forward i um and to talk about grief hitting me in the face i i didn't know what to expect with grief i'm still working through some things um i've learned to do it more healthy now than i did in the early stages but i went through it all i mean i went through anger i went through denial you know i went through depression you know there was it was hard. It was a very hard life raising three kids, trying to help them through it, get myself through it, stayed as close as I could to my family, considering leaving the fire department, didn't know if I continued to the career that I loved anymore. Where, who was I going to leave my kids with for 24 hours at a time, um, you know, and then come home and actually be a dad. Um, had the opportunity to go to the training academy after about four months of time off with my kids, which was great. I had a lot of leave built up. Uh, a lot of people worked for me towards the end of my leave running out. And um, the fire department really stepped up in a big way. And uh, the captain that I worked for early on was in training now. He brought me into the training division so I could be on my kid's schedule. But even that was, I'm on my kid's schedule, but now we're getting home at the same time. There's showers, there's homework, there's getting lunches ready for tomorrow, there's dinner. I haven't showered. I was getting them in bed at nine o'clock with no downtime, returning to the academy the next morning, Monday through Friday. You know, Friday nights were Friday nights for me. I was a zombie. I got my kids' pizza in a movie, and I just wanted to drink in my garage by myself and yell at God. And that's pretty much what I did most weekends. Um, I mean, I would take my kids to church Sunday night, but before church, I would stop by the liquor store and I would get a bottle of whiskey. We would go to church. I would get them in bed and I would sit in my garage and I would just drink whiskey and just ask God questions and just be angry and uh, listen to audio books. And I mean, I spent a good portion of my life like that. Um, you know, I, I got to a point where I realized um, 
that my wife was not religious. She had a different relationship with God where she could live free. And she had understood that more of like God was a father who just loved her no matter what. And she was not living a stressful life where she had to do all these things. And I started to adopt her mentality when it came to, all right, I have a God in heaven who loves me no matter what. And I'm not going to go through my life worried anymore. And I really started to put more of my faith in God versus my faith in a religious system. And that's probably where a lot of my life changed. A lot of my my faith journey changed as far as I stopped buying into the system people were telling me. And I started buying into a, a God in heaven who loves me. And I um, really started to expand on conversations sitting in my garage. Just, I'm going to try this whole talking to God thing. Never done this before. And, you know, sometimes I would hear back. Sometimes I wouldn't. Sometimes things would happen in my life where I didn't have any explanation other than, well, maybe God had to put this here. I don't believe in coincidence. But that was a uh, 2015, 2016 was a extremely challenging uh, time, extremely challenging year. Um, the academy was not working out for me. I agreed that I would finish that year in the academy. And I, my mom is the best person on earth. I pleaded with her to live at my house for 24 hours a day, 10 days a month. So I could go back to street work and get back on the street and do what I loved. And um, she 110% agreed to do that. My mom lived at my house for 10 days a month, 24 hour shifts, helped me raise my kids. I was able to be home when I was home, um, kind of got back into my career. Um, the ambulance was hard because I was going to people that were having seizures that were making it. You know, they were having seizures and they were taking medication and they were going home. And, uh, you know, I would get angry because they got to go home. My wife had a seizure and she died. So that was a challenge for a little while working through some of that, which I, di I didn't expect. I don't know why I didn't think about it. But my first seizure call, everything kind of came rushing back up. Um, So transitioned back to the street in 2016, yeah, still dealing with a lot. You know, uh, you know, I'm still, you know, my wife now is helping me deal with still unpacking some of this grief journey. And uh, I met my wife now. I met her at a, a church that we go to and she, she knew of me. Um, you know, I, I'd, I'd been, it'd been public that my wife had passed away and, you know, I had three kids and, um, you know, eventually we started dating and, you know, we got married and then, you know, she's, then there's the challenges with now. Um, you're not replacing a wife, but now there's a stepmom and kids. And now I'm, now I'm part of a step family. I'm grieving. I'm remarried. I'm still in the fire department. And my, my life has been pretty, I would say, I would say public as far as the fire department goes. I haven't kept a lot out of it. Um, the stuff you try and keep out of it, rumors get fed into it anyway. So I end up trying to correct stuff and pour back into it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's super challenging. I mean, even after being married that first year, I didn't realize how challenging it would be to be remarried after losing a spouse unexpectedly the way that I did. You know, I didn't get a divorce. It wasn't an ex. I was very much in love with her when she passed away. And, you know, I, I love my wife now. And, you know, it's been quite a journey that we've had to go through and the stuff that she's helped me work through. But I went through some serious depression uh, back in 2019. And, um, it's interesting because 2019 was the best year for me as far as my career goes. Uh, 2019, I I crushed the lieutenant's exam. Uh, I got the Fire Service Medal of Honor that year. 
I got firefighter of the year that year. It was a great year as far as my career went, but you know, my home life, it, it, I was just struggling with depression every day while I was home and the grief was eating me alive. And th thank God, you know, for my wife now, who's really just encouraged me and been patient to seek out help and go get the counseling. And I have the most patient wife out there now that um, I tell her all the time, I honestly don't know if I could do what she did. She stepped into a situation of a man who was in love with a woman, unexpectedly lost her, is here helping him raise three kids. And she is 110% the reason I am where I am today as far as getting help. You know, she got to see me sitting on the couch flipping through Netflix series after Netflix series. Or, you know, when I was drinking, I was drinking a lot and staring at a wall. And I had resolved that I would just live in my grief. And this is just the life of somebody who's lost somebody. And if I'm sorry that this is who you married and she's always called me to better never pushed me, but always believed in me and called me, you know, she just didn't believe that's who she married. She said, oh, no, you're, you're meant for more. And I, I believe that you can work through this stuff. And she got me to see some counselors. Um, and, uh, you know, I started seeing regular counselors, regular counselors weren't working. I started seeing some faith-based counselors and that really helped me out. They helped me really develop my relationship with God and actually talk to God. And I really started to learn like, a lot of the religious stuff that I've learned was not helping me at all and um, really started to explore my relationship with God and understood that relationship with if God is my father and he loves me like a father and I'm his son, there's nothing he wouldn't do for me. He doesn't want me to live, you know, depressed on this earth, you know, going through life unhappy. He'd want me to live, you know, a good life. And for me, the best way to honor Ashley's memory is to live a great life and be the best husband I can be now and be the best father for my kids I can be now. And being a good father and being a good husband and being a good leader here, th those are the things that I believe make me a good firefighter. Those are the things that I believe make me a good lieutenant. Those are the things that I believe make, make me a good friend. You know, it's focusing on those things. And um, to say it's been hard would be an understatement. Um, I mean, you talk about adversity. I've had a lot of stuff that's tried to stop me in my tracks. Um, I 100% believe there's a war happening between good and evil. Uh, I also believe that I am on the side that wins and nothing will stop me. I don't care what I have to do to get to the top of this mountain. I have a purpose. I have a calling and uh, it doesn't matter what life throws at me at this point. I'm not saying it won't be hard. I'm not out here welcoming challenges. I just know that if I've made it through what I've been through so far, I have a supportive wife and a family behind me and a God that loves me. I don't understand what I couldn't tackle. And, and now I just have this mentality of, I've just chosen to use what God's given me and my story as a way to build up resilience, overcome adversity, and just help other people do the same. And, Honestly, James, I really appreciate you giving me a place to share and do that. So that's it in a nutshell, I guess. Well, firstly, thank you. I mean, that is, I mean, there's so many kind of things we could pull out from, from yeah, you know, yeah. the, the, the reconciliation, for example. I just literally right. had a, a conversation with Nikki and Brendan uh, Quisenberry. Brendan was a uh, special forces um, operator and their journey, you know, I mean, he went through some infidelity and, and, 
what was really powerful was you look at the angry guy in the station or the one who's cheating or the alcoholic or whatever. The question we never ask is, what was that person like when they stood on the draw ground? You know, whether it was the military, whether it was a fire service, were they a dick? Were they a drunk? Were they already, you know, cheating? Chances are the answer is no. These are probably some of the most physically and mentally resilient men and women of the community at 18, 19, 20 years old. And then you fast forward 10 years in our career and you see all these things we talked about, whether it's the weight gain or the mental health issues or whatever. And what is beautiful is sometimes the the husband or the wife, whoever the kind of quote unquote victim is, can have the courage to say, you're not you right now. This job right. has actually affected you. And that's what's so beautiful is that you guys were able to get to that point. Yeah. Then what makes it so fucking heartbreaking is I've, I don't know of a single person in 14 years of you know fire and EMS who had a seizure without an evidence of a bleed who passed away. I know people that drowned in a bathtub with a seizure. I know people that had a brain bleed and died. Right. But to have that lack of closure because it doesn't even make any medical sense i mean what a brutal brutal end and i can also relate to your wife now her journey because when i met my wife i i got divorce um very long story very short when i was at the firehouse i wasn't the only guy in my house so that was kind of uh, you know i was on the other end of that and there was no desire to fix the, the marriage at that point from from her so it is what it is it was done so when i met my wife her she had been married she had a child and she was divorced and the man that she was with who she was madly in love with took his own life when he was on the phone to her so i walked into a single parent who was grieving and i was grieving from a divorce so i can totally empathize with that new dynamic as well because you know it is a completely different way of uh you know family to walk into you're a step parent as you said you've got grief you've got all these compounding elements so i can relate to to so many areas of the story i haven't lived that kind of trauma myself but you know it's it's powerful to hear i think that's what i'm trying to say is it's powerful to hear these human stories and that you were able to navigate out because i think what's so sad with the mental health conversations is i was able to live with my ptsd it's it's not about living with it's about coming out the other end and being stronger because of it. But we cannot right. do that without, as you said, community, you know, the loving family, the right tools, whether it's counseling, whether it's psychedelics, whether it's you know, faith, a combination of all of them. And so to hear this incredibly, you know, saddening story that you've had to endure, but then to hear where you are now, I think is, is an invaluable perspective that you don't hear very many people discuss. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's... uh it's not one of those stories that, uh, you know, it's, it's not all glitz and glam, you know, it's been, it's been a a hard journey. You know, I still deal with things on a daily basis. Not a day goes by where I don't miss Ashley, you know, and, uh, it's, it's challenging, you know, it's, I'm at a point now I would say where there's a lot of people that they see where I am now and it's, wow, man, look where you're at. And, you know, you don't quit. You know, you've developed this don't quit mentality and, and you like ownership and you're engaged and, you know, you're you're a good husband and you're a good dad. And, you know, this wasn't always me. I wasn't always here. You know, it's it's they think they're getting to see the product of a man who has been beaten, battered, broken, is still a little broken and is living out life to the best of his ability, trusting, you know, that still God has still things for me. And um 
it's it's easy to look at somebody's life and say, wow, I want what he has. And uh, I don't wish what I've gone through, you know, on anybody. And I've, I've taken it and I've made a decision, I think, to, like I said, you know, trust God. And, you know, outside of that, there are still practical things that I do daily to stay engaged. And, you know, it's like loving my wife is a daily choice. You know, loving my kids is a daily choice, you know, re-engage, re-realigning my priorities. It's a daily thing. You know, am I spending too much time here? Balance. You know, I very much love my career, but I very much love my family. And I would choose my family over my career any day of the week, you know? So it's, uh, yeah, I think now it's shedding some light on the mental health issues, the stuff I've dealt with in the, the military. You know, my wife now is helping me unpack the stuff I dealt with in the military and the detachment issues because me and Ashley really never, we never dealt all that out and it doesn't go away. So she's kind of helping me work through that now. She got me, uh, she finally convinced me to see a, a counselor about some fire department things. And I started to unpack some things with the counselor as far as what I've seen, what I've been through, how I was feeling. Uh, got involved with the peer support team at work, was one of the founding members of the peer support team. So trying to help other people work through their things. And I think the most important thing through all this is I'm not, I'm not over here <clears throat> saying, yeah, I'm perfect. You know, I'm not over here saying, uh, you know, Hey, look what I've done. You can do it too. Uh, I'm, I'm an example of a man who life has continually tried to take out. There are probably some things still around the corner for me that I wouldn't expect, but I have to believe that the things that I've been through and the choices that I've made surrounding them are preparing me for those things that are around the corner. So that when they hit, they just won't hit as hard. And, you know, I, I would, I, I hope, honestly, unexpectedly losing my wife is one of the hardest things I will ever have to go through. Um, I'm able to uh, joke a little bit now, you know, it's, it's still not great, but I look at my wife now and I say, well, I'm going first this time. I'm not doing this again. You know, I've already done it once, you know, I'm not doing it twice. And, uh, you know, she doesn't want to go through it once. So we, we kindly argue back and forth, but yeah, I, I mean, I really do believe that, you know, and everybody's circumstance is different, but I think adversity itself is adversity and there's different levels. And I think, um, you know, whatever level of adversity you're encountering or whatever you're going through, I think it is possible to look it in the face and overcome it. But you have to be open to the resources that are out there to tackle those problems. And I could have worked through some things earlier. I didn't do that. And that, that's, that's, I'm, I'm here now and I can't continue to look back and see what I didn't do. There are things out there now that I use. There are people that I talk to. I have, like I said, I have a very supportive wife. Um, and honestly, things like this, the opportunity to share, uh, they give me purpose, right? To know that there's, there's purpose, you know, from the pain that I experienced and that it could help other people. Uh, it does give me joy in knowing that, okay. If I went through that so I could help somebody else, I need to be helping other people. And I think my wife saw that. My wife now saw that, hey, you can't sit on this couch and and watch Ozark for the rest of your life. You know, great series, but you you can't just do this. You're called to so much more. Like you want to travel, you want to speak, you got to work through some of this stuff. And uh, man, I literally have the most supportive wife. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't give her enough credit, but she's pretty awesome. So. Well, beautiful. It's funny you say about dying, you know, 
first this time i told my wife the opposite because she's the kind of person the moment i pick someone off the ground she jams her finger into my butt and so i tell her i don't have an asshole so it's never gonna work so she says well when i die first she's gonna finally be able to see it i'm like no you're dying first so you never get to see it so it's a slightly different motivation of the same thing that you were talking about but (laughs) yeah that's yeah that's interesting that's funny though All right. Well, I just want to hit one more topic before we wrap up. Um, you mentioned sure. about the Medal of Honor in 2019. We talked about, you know, the kind of the things in the fire service that must be fixed because they are 100% detrimental to our performance, to our longevity. Let's finish with the very reason that we train, the very reason that we we stay in shape, that we create cohesion in our in our crew. So talk to me about that rescue in 2019. Yeah, sure. So yeah, this is the perfect lead in for what you just talked about. So I've always trained. I've been big on the basics my whole career. I consider myself a a basic firefighter who's focused on the basics. And maybe that makes me look advanced, but it's always been about the basics. And in 2019, I 110% believe that training on the basics and getting good and being in that, you know, in shape to actually perform the activities you know, on a sh- mental level and physical level is what led to that rescue. So I was at uh, Station 9 in Midtown, and I was the acting officer on Ladder 9 that night, once again, the truck company. Uh, so great stuff. And it was it was a good summer. It was a really good spring. It was a really good summer. And uh, we were pretty busy, had a really good crew, very reminiscent of the crew that I worked with, with it too. But like I said, I wasn't trying to compare. I was just enjoying my crew that summer. Uh, we went to bed that night after a lengthy game of spades that was interrupted between like 32 calls. And I figured it'd be like any other night. Either I would go to bed and wake up in the morning or we'd be busy going to nursing homes back and forth. We'd been to a couple fires already. And um, at that point, our crew was kind of gelling and we knew what to do as a crew. And it, it was exciting. I was sitting in the acting seat that night. So my officer was off. So I was in charge. And I went to bed at 11 o'clock. And then um, after, let's see, it was about 11 o'clock. I was woken up about 5 a.m. to the brass hitting. We have different tones in our city for medical calls and um, fires. So it was the fire tones. Immediately, you know, it's a fire, but it could be an alarm or, you know, whatever. I slide the pole, get to the truck, throw my gear on just like any other day, get in the truck throw everything in. We're cruising down the road, following the trucks out of the station, look at the comments on the computer, and it says a porch is on fire. And I thought, well, is a porch on fire? That's cool. We'll probably be home in 20 minutes. The first incoming engine company should be able to handle that. No problem. We might need to use a fan, blow out some smoke. I'll be back in bed. It's 515. I'll probably get relieved when I come home. Well, we pull down the street and the porch is on fire, along with four out of the eight apartments the porch is attached to. So uh, there's black smoke billowing through the sky, normal scene for anybody that's been on a fire. And at this point, nobody really knows what the assignment's going to be. This is a lot bigger than we thought it was going to be. I grab my stuff. I get out of the truck before I can even take a step towards the building. I'm listening to the radio for an assignment. The lieutenant on the engine company grabs me and says, hey, there's a kid trapped upstairs. We need you guys to grab him. Uh, Initially, all I heard was kid trapped. I looked around um, in the distance right over. They were bringing his dad out of a second story window with smoke billowing over his head. As he came down the ladder, there was no kid behind him. So the kid was confirmed trapped upstairs by himself. And like I said, there's that that switch that flips. It was just rescue mode. 
I got to the front door of the apartment structure, which would, that that door led to a stairway that led to four apartments, two on the bottom, two on the top. And the engine company was forcing the door. I think um, the rookie there was doing a good job, but I didn't think it was fast enough. I snatched his tools, forced the door. Assuming my ladder crew was behind me, I ran to the top of the stairwell, hot smoke. I don't want to get into too many fire details. It's hot and smoky. You can't see. It's not like the movies. It's uncomfortable. I've been in fires before, and this one was hotter than most. Um, I know this kid is possibly in this apartment. I open the door. I tell the person behind me who is on the engine company, hey, I'm going to go in here. Can you chalk the door or hold the door for me? Assuming my crew is right behind me. So I'll go in the apartment building. The door shuts behind me. I don't know where the communication got lost as far as them holding the door. They were on fire attack, so they obviously had another job to do. But for one reason or another, the door gets shut behind me. My crew is not in there with me, and I realize I'm in this apartment by myself. So my first thought is I need to get this door back open just in case I need to get out of here. I can't just be in this apartment searching this apartment by myself. You need to have your buddy with you. You got to have your crew with you. Well, all this stuff's racing through my head. And then I hear the kids screaming. At that point, I have a decision to make. And it was really not a decision in that moment. It was find the door, find the kid. I decided, well, I, I got to grab this kid. My mission is to grab this kid. So without even thinking about it, I thought I would just stay on a left hand or right hand search until I found him. But I did not know how long he was going to be able to scream. The apartment was visibly on fire. I can't see it. If it's hot and smoky for me in gear, he's not wearing anything. I don't know how long he's going to be screaming. So I decided that I would just follow the screaming kid and hopefully I would find him. Uh, That strategy paid off. I bumped into him at some point in the apartment, scooped him up in my arm Asked him if there was anybody else in there. He was just coughing at that point. Kind of went limp in my arms for a second. I turned around to leave the apartment. And then that's when I realized I had no idea where I was. I had come off the wall, obviously. Followed the kid's screams. You know, it's probably a three, four bedroom apartment at this point. And now I'm holding in my arm two seconds from calling a mayday because I'm completely disoriented because of this kid sitting in my arms. And a million things are going through my head at that point. I'm trapped in this apartment. I'm by myself. There's nobody else in here. I have to get him to safety. Um, I don't want to screw up the scene by calling a mayday because there's four out of 80 of these apartments are on fire. So if I call a mayday, that's really going to screw things up. Um, Can I get to the front window? I don't know where the front window is. All these things are going through my head. How much air do I have? I checked my air at some point. Don't even remember what it said. And basic training kicks back in. You just need to find a wall, find a wall, find a window, find a window, find a door. And, you know, the kid at this point is unconscious in my arm. I run back to just one direction. I have no idea which direction I'm going, but I hit a wall and I decided I'm going to stay on this wall until I find a window, until I find a door. Luckily, I find a doorknob. I open the door. That happened to be the door to the stairwell that I entered the apartment in. Um, So at this point, I can hear it's hotter in the hallway than it was when I entered. I can hear the engine company at the top of the steps and they're operating. still trying to put the fire out. I still had not connected with my crew at this point. Um, Turns out later I would find out when they went up the stairwell, they thought I went left and they followed left and went to search with me. They didn't know I was went right and was trapped in that room by myself with the kid. 
um, I radioed to command at the point, let them know that I had the kid. Uh, about halfway down the stairwell, I passed him to somebody on the engine company who took him out the building to the ambulance. I went back up the steps, reconnected with my crew on the ladder who was searching for me at that point. And we jumped on the hose line, helped the engine company, put the rest of the fire out in that area. Um, we're called back out. Things that kind of started to calm down. All the Everybody's bottles are ringing at this point. Um, we go back to the truck. My adrenaline at this point is, I mean, through the roof. Um, I was like, we're not taking a break. We're getting another bottle. Like, get another bottle. Like, uh, you know, at this point, you know, me and my buddy are, he's like, where did you go? Like, you know, we haven't even, nobody's dived out the story yet. We have no idea. I'm just, we need to get another bottle. And he gets another bottle. I get another bottle. And now we're on the first floor doing overhaul. And we're, I mean, we're exhausted at this point. The adrenaline has completely worn off. Most of the fires knocked down. Um, I don't even think I could put a hook through a drywall ceiling at this point. We are completely exhausted. Bottles start ringing. We're outside. I, I get outside. I take my gear off. I'm barefoot because I forgot to put socks on. I didn't sleep with socks that night. I'm barefoot in the middle of the neighborhood, sitting on the back of the, the ladder truck, staring at the ground, really starting to put together some of what just happened. And uh, my buddy looks at me and he says, are you okay? And I said, nope. And, uh, he was like, all right, well, I said, I mean, I, I will be, but, uh, you know, I'm not right now. And, uh, I said, where is the, where's the kid? He said, he's in the ambulance and, uh, they took off already. I said, okay. Uh, I was like, I, I really don't want to know anything else right now. I don't want to know if he made it or didn't make it. I just, I need to go home. And, uh, you know, it was the, the lieutenant's exam. It was actually the next day. And, uh, you know, the lieutenant that showed up on scene looked at me and he said, hey, you ready for this shit? And I was like, uh, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I questioned everything I'd ever known about fire tactics, leadership, decision making just with that one question. And, uh, you know, I, I, my latest book, I kind of touch on some of that stuff. But that question rocked me for a little while. And uh, well, I wasn't sure. Was I really ready? Because I was the acting officer. And even though I was the acting officer, I wasn't pointing fingers uh, I ended up in the building, you know, on my own for whatever reason, you know, performing the rescue. And um, he spent about a week in the hospital, the kid uh, with a breathing tube. And uh, I, I usually don't ask questions. You know, kids are probably different for me because I have my own kids. I asked some questions and he was in the hospital for a week, you know, had the breathing tube and they just wanted to keep an eye on him. He ended up found out he left the hospital and that was good enough, you know, for me and they started talking metals. I said, no, and, uh, this is what we do. And, you know, we've kind of discussed some stuff in this, you know, today they're like, not everybody does this though. You know, um, it's not what everybody does. And it's like, I really, I don't really want any recognition. You know, it's, it's fine. I'd really like to just continue. And i really didn't get a choice. It was, this is, we're letting you know what's happening and you're not skipping the ceremony. And this is something good for your, your family to see, which is kind of what really, I guess, talked me into it was you've spent a lot of time in your career doing this and you did, you did do something heroic, whether you like it or not, I don't care how you consider it, but it'd be great for your wife and kids to see what you do, what you've committed your life to the kind of service, the kind of person that you are. So for my family, I kind of conceded, it really seemed like I didn't have a choice. Um, 
You know, it was, you're getting the fire service medal of honor. And, um, my buddy invited a ton of people, which I've still am not happy about because I was trying to keep it as low key as possible. And I looked in the crowd and he just smiled and, you know, looking back, it's kind of cool that there were people there to celebrate it with, but I don't, I don't do this job for medals. I've never done it for medals. You know, I, uh, I want to hang a black helmet on the wall someday, regardless of what the clean cab and everybody else out there is saying, I'll, I'll clear code it so I could hang it on my wall. But, uh, that that's the medal I want to take away. And, um, you know, I, I can honestly say that I, I've always been into fitness. I was always in shape. That was probably one of the worst calls that I've been on as far as the fire department goes. Uh, I was mentally able to make decisions. I think basic training, if it's ingrained inside of you and you train hard enough, you will automatically go back to the basics. Your mind will go back to the basics. That's why they say stick to the basics stick to the basics, find a window, find a wall, find a door. And that's truly what got me out of there. But, you know, it's, I wasn't intending to be in that position that day, but that was somebody else's kid. It wasn't my kid, you know, and, um, probably six months went by and we were playing spades at the station and, and they said, Hey, somebody's out in the bay. Somebody's here to see you. And I'm like, okay, cool. I thought it was, you know, somebody's family member. It was the kid. And, uh, I obviously didn't recognize him, you know, we have, I didn't even get to see him, you know, I just scooped him up and, uh, his mom's in tears and she was like, this is him. This is who you rescued. And, uh, I mean, I could get teary eyed now. I mean, to think that I really did rescue him, he probably would have lost his life. He would not have made it. And, you know, he was getting to play football, you know, that, that fall, you know, with his friends and, I don't know what that kid will go on to do. You know, I have no idea. And the medal was great. Ceremony was cool. Yeah, it's it's cool to say. And, uh, you know, not everybody has a grab. I'm not going to lie that, you know, I joined the service to help people. Like, I'm on a truck company. Like, you, you dream about doing stuff like this. You know, you don't get to plan it out. It just happened. And um, But I think the most rewarding thing was honestly getting to see the kid out of the hospital, walk away, he gets to do his life, whatever that looks like. And, um, yeah, metal cool, but getting to meet the kid and the mom bringing him by and getting to take a picture, uh, and that messed me up for the rest of the night. I wasn't good at spades for the rest of the night. I can tell you that, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, so. that's amazing. I mean, you know, we, you talked about loss. Well, you know, what a beautiful way to wrap this up is to, you know, to, to keep a life in this world, even though, you know, you lost yeah. one personally. So, Sure. You talked about the book. Your latest book is called Take the Lead. The one before is Jump Seat Leadership. So where people listening, where can they find those books? And then where can they find more about you online? Yeah, if you just go to the chasecollectivellc.com, that's that's pretty much the the blanket for everything that I have. And uh, I mean, I just started a company and the, the whole premise behind it is to strengthen and encourage other people just to find their purpose. You know, whatever that looks like, whatever you're going through. And, uh, yep, chasecollectivellc.com, uh, jumpseatleadership.org. Uh, that's most of my fire department brand. I run the fire department jump seat leadership page. And, uh, yeah, so you type in Joshua Chase on Facebook. There's like a hundred of us on there, but, uh, I'm the most handsome looking one with an amazing wife. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's how you can get a hold of me if you need to. So 
Beautiful. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. We've been talking for almost three hours now. and Wow. Yeah, but I mean, we've hit some fire service topics and I think they were very important. But, you know, the, it's the, as you talked about before we hit record, it's the human story. Like you wore a uniform, yeah. wear a uniform still. I wore a uniform and, and there's so much to pull from firefighter fitness and leadership and all those things. But I think what really resonates with people are the humans within the uniform. And so, you know, you, you've led us through such a powerful conversation and like so many people, when they are courageously vulnerable, I understand that that takes a piece of you, you know, you're kind of pulling the wound open a little bit, but yeah. I know that it will resonate so deeply with people listening. So I want to thank you so, so much for being so courageous and so generous with your time today. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, James. I just appreciate you giving me a place to share and uh, just praying it helps a few people. 